episode zero or episode one, I guess, depending on whether you're into the new math or not, of Heckmouth. Uh, Heckmouth is another movie podcast out in the world. Uh, I am Andy Wilzak, uh, aka Hostface, <laughs> for for Heckmouth purposes, um, at least while we're in podcast form. Uh, my co-host, partner in crime in this, uh, really just the person I knew. I could say here's a here's a bad idea I have. Um, <laughs> please say yes to it. Uh, Adam Griffin is here. And yeah. Griff, why does the internet need another movie podcast? Oh, I think the internet needs another movie podcast because the internet needs a positive movie <laughs> podcast. Yes, <laughs> that is why we're here. So even though the odds are that uh, all caps big podcast might not ever let Heckmouth get any traction anywhere, um, we want to do our part um, because over our what, like 25 year friendship or whatever it's been because man, we're old. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that we really have in common is that we, at this point in our lives cannot, cannot stand. Uh, what do you, what do you want to call it? Like hot take, hot take culture, hot, hot take, <laughs> uh, stand negativity culture, <laughs> stand negativity. <laughs> yeah. All of that. And it's weird to say that like, we want the show to be positive, and then we say, like, we hate this thing about people hating on stuff. There's really no better way to put it, right? It's it's so weird, because it, it feels like a lot of a lot of the so-called discourse surrounding entertainment, whether it's genre entertainment or anything in particular, is uh, invasively contrarian is the phrase that comes to mind, I uh, guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, some of you listening to this might, might know me from my academic career, uh, which I am trying to run away from as fast as I can. Uh, but in like, in my classes, I now have a rule in my syllabus that says that students can't play devil's advocate. Um, and I specifically say like, why would you want to advocate for the devil? He has enough people doing that already. Um, and that really is like the internet's work. <laughs> and, and so I guess like one of, one of the driving, uh, forces, I guess, behind Heckmouth is that we wanted to, to put something positive onto the internet as ridiculous as that might sound. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be critical, right? But like critical in a constructive way, you know, not, not, uh, critical for the sake of like getting, getting people to listen to our show or getting people fired up. Um, so they're dunking on us on Twitter, but then also accidentally giving us a lot of free publicity. Uh, like people have been doing to Ted Cruz for the last week or so. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> um, and so like, we're going to, we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff um, on this podcast. Originally we were going to call it the director's, um, and this has kind of morphed out of the idea of of looking at specific chunks of different directors' filmographies um, and really just kind of broadening it to include uh, film franchises, uh, TV series. Um, so coming in the future on Heckmouth, um, 
we have we have planned episodes on uh, Kevin Smith's filmography. Uh, we'll be talking about Agent Carter. Uh, we'll be talking about the Nicolas Cage film Mandy. Um, I imagine knowing uh, our mutual friends, we'll probably be talking about some select episodes of Lost. I don't know that we could do an entire <laughs> an entire rewatch for one podcast. Seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> Of, yeah. of all of that. But I, I think we could probably do like a season premiere and finale thing. I, I imagine we'll be talking about Halloween at some point. <laughs> um, we'll be talking about uh, some, of, some of George Romero's work. Um, I think specifically the, the, dead, the dead films. Um, and just kind of on from there. So this is uh, kind of approaching what uh, I guess we could call the genre, <laughs> right? Uh, fighting for the genre, um, but just trying to create some positive discussion and really, I guess, shed some light on like the positive stuff that people have created um, and uh, hopefully draw attention to some stuff that maybe folks have not had the chance to watch or maybe haven't watched in a while. Um, and also, of course, like I am legendary in my having never watched anything. <laughs> uh over over my life and so this this gives me reason now to to either rewatch stuff i haven't seen in forever or to check out some new stuff anything you want to that you want to add before we we get into this week's um well i was just i was thinking about the phrase of a guilty pleasure in mm-hmm. watching some of the stuff or just like the trepidation of committing to liking something. I think mm-hmm. a, a big, uh, a big conversational tool now is when we're talking about stuff and somebody goes, well, actually it was kind of, you know, it was kind of all right, or it wasn't that bad mm-hmm. as if the default is to say, well, we're not on the side of it just yet. Yeah. Or we think it's going to be bad <laughs> going into something with the the assumption that it's going to be terrible, yeah. Um, like, why are you watching it then? Yeah, and I, I, th- <laughs> I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show too is because the older I get, the more I don't want to have that response or be a part of that response yeah. or be party to that response, be on the other side of it. It's like let's just go all out in our appreciation of this stuff. If we don't like it then we don't like it and we move on or we recognize that it's not for us and it could be for somebody else and we move on, you know, just keep moving. So that's, yeah. that's kind of where, you know, headspace is on this. Stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of people might, I don't know. I don't know how to put this. I, I think that folks tend to think of everything as being like an art house film when it's not. And like, there's a lot of genre stuff that is intentionally kind of schlocky, maybe, um, but it's obviously not like an art house film and people will go into, into stuff thinking that this is like, I don't know, like, like some kind of really, uh, I don't know, but it's like high culture, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and like, it's not, and it's not supposed to be, um, it, it's not supposed to be like this elitist kind of like hyper intellectual inaccessible thing you know it's wandavision <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like 
you know, it's, it's there to get your brain going in the moment, but you can leave it right where it is and go off and do other stuff. Yeah. It's incredibly well done and, and insanely well produced and well written and well acted. Um, but then to see folks who are like, like I was a little, a little unsure about what one division was going to be like, but I'm, I'm really surprised at how good it is. It's like, like the show, the show's the show. Regardless. Yeah, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other thing that we, we should also mention here is that we, I don't think either of us are huge fans of that element of, uh, hashtag the discourse that is like, they should have done it this way. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't stand that shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's awful, right? Like let the art stand for, for what it is. Uh, if you don't like it, then make your own thing. Yeah. (laughs) So um, and and maybe make it under the Heckmouth label because that's <laughs> something that I'm hoping to accomplish with this in the coming year. Um, but like we talked about this with Star Wars, um, with the Disney Star Wars on um, your podcast, which we'll plug um, at the end about like Star Wars has always been this pulpy kind of thing. Right. Uh, if <laughs> there's there's plenty of science fiction out there, like books specifically, that are much more in depth, that are much more philosophical that ask a lot more challenging questions. Um, so if you don't like, like what Disney has done with star Wars, then like buy the rights to, to those books and then make your own space opera. Otherwise like shut up (laughs) (laughs) just to hear it, Like you're not adding anything, um, to it. So with all that in mind, um, we are here to be positive. We are here to try to where necessary, maybe no ways that stuff could be, could be improved on like tweaked um to to improve what we hope that the the directors and writers and actors were trying to accomplish um but we're not here for hot takes unless like i guess in a a 21st century or maybe 2021 twist like saying something nice is (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah a little bit but which would be appropriate like that's appropriately meta for <laughs> what we're opening Heckmouth with, what we are christening this ship with as it lumbers out of port. Uh, tonight we are talking about Wes Craven's Scream series. Um, we'll be talking about the movies, uh, not not Scream, the TV show, uh, only because we haven't watched it. <laughs> or at least I haven't. I haven't watched it. I haven't watched it and actually, like, what... I'm going to like get to and talk about the franchise. It makes a point as to why uh, this franchise endures more from a movie perspective rather than a TV series. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. I, I looked it up last night and I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that it had made it to, to three seasons. Um, but they're, they're out there. So I'm going to, uh, at some point, um, because I, I do love um, the movies so much. I'm going to give the show, uh, an honest chance <laughs> and and um see what they see what they did to try to adapt it adapt the idea um so i i wanted to start with scream um because uh it's i think probably my favorite scary movie to to address the cliched opening <laughs> question that we could have easily done with uh opened the show with um what's your favorite scary movie 
At one point in prep for this, I did work myself into a minor panic attack debating the first Scream and John Carpenter's The Thing, (laughs) over which one I like more. Um, But I I think if I'm being honest with myself, it's Scream. Um, I would would put it um, maybe in my top five all-time movies. Um, I I love the franchise. Um, I think each movie is its kind of standalone uh, thing. I, I, you don't necessarily have to watch them. You don't have to know what happened in any of them to really get uh, Scream 2, 3, or 4 necessarily. Um, I, I think they do a fantastic job of balancing um, horror and comedy, but also like this suspense and mystery element, um, which really sets it apart from all of the other slasher uh, films. Um, and I, I know that like they they borrow like this scream cannot exist without like obviously nightmare on Elm street um, and Friday the 13th um, and Halloween and all these other slashers that have defined the genre. It's very much a uh, standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing. Um, But I think it takes so much from those other, those other franchises and improves on it and have kind of created a formula that, um, you know, now four movies in, I think still has a ton of potential. Um, and we're both very excited for Scream 5. Um, I guess we'll just scream. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, there's a, I think there's a twist with, with the title coming. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. <laughs> but, so let's go, let's go through it chronologically um, and start with, with the original um, Wes Craven's Scream. Um, that followed a uh, new nightmare. Um, and I'm sure, I'm, well, I know that we'll be talking about <laughs> nightmare in Elm street um, on here at some point. Um, Cause I know about your, your love for that, that franchise, but um, I mentioned a new nightmare because um, that's, I think, I mean, I'm not familiar with Wes Craven's earlier stuff, but I think that's the first time he goes really meta. Um, with this yeah. filmmaking, um, and if you watch any nightmare, you really see a lot of the groundwork for Scream, um, kind of laid there. Yeah, yeah, he had like kind of two test runs, both from the meta aspect and the actual narrative aspect. The first uh, was Shocker, mm-hmm. which was kind of his first attempt at reclaiming uh, the Freddy Krueger phenomenon. Mm-hmm from a mainstream perspective, didn't get quite go to plan. Um, and then, uh, you know, you fast forward to Shocker was 1989, I think. Mm-hmm. So then 1994 was New Nightmare where he got the metasexual stuff. Mm-hmm. And finally it all comes together with Scream in 96. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to look for Shocker. Um, it's, it's so weird too that Scream came out in 1996 because aside from like some of the the technology parts of it, I mean, because so much of the film is centered on, on the phone and the phone calls. Um, other than that, like it, it really holds up um, yeah. really, really well, which is something that other, other films kind of struggle with a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I binged Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and, and Scream um, this past October. And it, you know, the Friday the 13th movies are are very visually dated just in terms of of their fashion but somehow something about that that 
mid nineties style, <laughs> maybe because it's coming back. I don't know. Um, it seemed, <laughs> it seemed very, um, very timely. Like they don't no none of the cast really stood out. I mean, like I said, I mean, obviously cell phone technology has, has evolved. Um, nobody has landlines anymore, but beyond that, like it's an incredible movie. Yeah. Um, so what's, what stood out to you? Like, what did you, you have notes, you did, you did prep. I am, I am improv. Tons, <laughs> tons of notes. I wrote out like eight note cards and it printed out to five pages. Oh, wow. So, All right. <laughs> so let's break down scream. Let's break down scream. Um, it, the, the first movie, especially, but the whole franchise is instantly dated but also being a product of the various decades they were produced in, mm-hmm. as well as being very forward thinking as far as how they present um, the characters in that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scream especially. Scream's mm-hmm. instantly a movie from the mid-90s yep. in both how people talk and uh, the, the, the structure of it mm-hmm. and how it kind of plays with horror movie conventions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing that came to mind, and I was just going through, mm-hmm. is it kind of, it kind of says exactly what it's going for when uh, Randy and, and Stu are talking in the video store and, and Stu's like, you know, what, what's, what's his motive? What do you think the, the slasher's motive is going to be? And Randy's like, it's the millennium. Motives are incidental. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they're just kind of saying, look, you guys don't care <laughs> about why <laughs> th- this, this, this killer in the mask is doing stuff. Mm-hmm. You just want to see what happens. Yep. And once we give you this, you're either going to be with it or not. Yeah. Um, and every movie, it, it's, it's an odd franchise because they, uh, Wes Craven was signed for three films. Mm-hmm. Kevin Williamson gave them this script and the outline for two more. Mm-hmm. And he got so busy with, he couldn't even, you know, do the full script for part three. So this is other than the fourth movie, this is the only time, uh, the only time they could really hone in on what they wanted to do and not be under a crunch. Yeah. Cause we'll talk about the, the shit with part two, you know, when we get to part yeah, two. And, yeah. Number two is, feels rushed and there's like weird continuity things with it. Like even doing research for this, for number two, there was stuff that I thought that, that seemed really obvious to me, but then looking at the various fan wikis, like, wait, wait, like this person was involved with this kill. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and, and, but like I, that's 100% just a product I think of, of how rushed they were because the turnaround between scream and scream two is, um, by today's standards, like insanely fast. Um, but we'll get to that. Uh, main thing I picked up is that it, it kind of, the movie itself touches on a, a couple of core ideas that they will repeat throughout uh, the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, exploitation of trauma mm-hmm. with Sydney and her mom, her mom being murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, misogyny, big time. This comes yeah. up, you know, throughout the whole thing uh and entitlement that turns to misguided revenge yeah uh you know Stu 
at the end, and we're going to spoil the shit out of everything. So, oh yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. If, if, I mean, all of these episodes are going to have to come with with major spoiler warnings. Um, I, I think we're. I think the purpose of Heckmouth is to talk about like the art and the writing behind this, and um, with the assumption that like you have watched all the Scream movies. Uh, I I remember in college I was obsessed with Scream too. <laughs> um, uh, you've watched this stuff before. If you haven't, if you haven't watched this, um, like spoiler warnings for for everything, and that's this stands for every episode we do from here on out. <laughs> We're gonna yeah. spoil stuff for you. But uh, it's you know watching watching Scream back and knowing exactly what uh you know what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, Stu and Billy are pretty fucking bold from the jump. Yeah. Like they are. Like, like uh like Stu talking about how they would gut someone. Yep. You know, it's like, well geez, bro, we it's so <laughs> you're just right to, you're telling people and you're waking at the audience. Yeah. You know, which they'll figure out later. But yeah. which is something that I love about these movies is like watching it again and again. Um, for like and trying to imagine those parts that we're we're not seeing, um, and I think I also think that's part of what is so brilliant with this because they keep you at least in the first one they really really keep you guessing at at who's doing it, um, and so like watching it again knowing that this is like defying the trope of just one killer and now we have two guys doing it um, right. and being able to watch it and kind of know who is Ghostface when, because the movie does these really great, like, uh, like Ghostface will attack Sydney, um, and she barely gets away. And then, you know, one of the people who could be the killer just happens to show up there just in time. Right. Yeah. Um, and so when you're watching it and you have no idea what's going on, it's, it's a little bit frustrating, but not to the point of like, insulting the audience like right. if you're if you're watching this and you're trying to solve the mystery and you're thinking that only one person could possibly do this then it's like it's a real edge of your seat thing especially because the the final the third act in scream is so brilliant just because it's all set at that party at yeah. Stu's at Stu's house which just doesn't happen right right um i mean in and around the property right because Dewey and um, Gail uh, go for a walk and they find Sydney's dad's car, but but by and large, like it's it's inside the house um, from the party to the party breaking up because they found Principal Himby uh, <laughs> strung up, which we don't see. Which I I have to imagine. Um, well, in my mind, at least Henry Winkler was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so is this necessary? Is this really this necessary? <laughs> To crucify me on the football goalposts. <laughs> and we'll, um, we, uh, the the ritualistic killing aspect mm-hmm. in learning what we learn in part three. The, the not it's not and I, I have a nitpick with uh, uh, retcons versus yeah. revelation. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, Scream Three does not negate Scream One. No, not at all. It just reveals some shit you didn't know for its own purposes. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that there is, there is kind of like this ritualistic display that this killer does, because they don't, they don't ever call him Ghostface until the mm-hmm. later movies. Um, but, 
in, in saying that this is this whole thing it's 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 theatrical in a theatrical movie so mm-hmm. yeah um it kind of led me to think you know and then they ha- even have the line from uh henry winkler it's like you know kids today yep <laughs> which is a great scene because a principal today is saying that would be fired immediately. And yeah. he's like threatening him with a with a pair of scissors or something. Yeah. And like, I want to rip your entrails out. And I mean, they do it because I think they want to like set up very briefly, like maybe Principal Himby has gone insane and is the killer, um, which would be such a departure for Henry Winkler. I mean, because everybody just thinks of him as the Fonz. Right. Right. Um, or at least at the time thought of him as the Fonz, now probably because of his 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 time in arrested development as Barry Zuckercorn. <laughs> um but in either case, right, like <laughs> Henry Winkler is a as a knife wielding maniac. Um that's the movie that we need. <laughs> Maybe that's what will happen in Scream Five is that Principal yeah. Himby <laughs> becomes bad. Oh I, I got uh, his revenge. I got I got notes for Scream Five. But uh, Oh yeah. Um, but uh I was thinking like just how the characters are presented. Mm-hmm. Um, I think each film deserves another watch just because of the, who they present as the audience surrogate that is presented as the wrong kind of audience surrogate. But what do you mean? Uh, okay, so I got for Billy Loomis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, more so than Randy, because Randy doesn't. Randy Meeks does not know any better. Yeah. Um, Billy Loomis has an effect. He has adopted this persona mm-hmm. where, and you know, since he's the killer, um, he has no actual connection to the reality that the movie's presenting. Mm-hmm. So all he does to communicate with Sydney is he's bringing up examples of the exorcist and shit like that, especially mm-hmm. at the end, you know, Carrie, pig's mm-hmm. blood, all these mm-hmm. movie examples, you know, fictional examples and references that are inappropriate for you know the time period it is in mm-hmm. you know and in the situation that he's dealing with and um uh you know it's kind of saying you know hey do not act like this <laughs> and this repeats you know with randy especially in part two uh which we'll talk about in two yeah. and other things so yeah. it, it you know the, in in a series that doesn't um that runs away from the usual horror archetypes it cements its own mm-hmm. and kind of comments on them as it's commenting uh, on the horror genre. Yeah. While it's, you know, in production, I suppose. So it's just, it's really, it's a lot you can go by. Like they even talk about um, uh, uh, Richard Gere and the gerbil story, Tatum and, 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 and Sydney are talking, you know, about how, um, you know, it, it's not really a real story, but people have repeated it so much. Yeah. That it's accepted as being a true thing. Which, you know, you take a look at Woodsboro fifteen years after Scream One, it's got its own gerbil story. So you know. Yeah. I feel I feel bad for Tatum because like Dewey ends up being so integral to the to the entire franchise and her death only comes up one other time. Yeah. And you know, yeah, and again, that that's back to the. I think the series, and I, I'm I'm jumping around because we're talking about stuff that keeps coming that keeps yep. coming up later. But um, eventually, the series has to do a full account and reckoning with its idea of misogyny. I think. Yeah, 
yeah and i wonder if that's something that'll happen now yeah right like i how do, how do i say this i don't know if west craven was capable of it just yeah. through, i just and i'm not speaking ill of west craven in any way shape or form um this is not heckmouth trying to cancel west craven i just think it was like a generational thing you know what yeah. i mean right um because like if you watch Again, like the eighty, the seventies and eighties slashers that Scream is drawing all the tropes from, like they're incredibly misogynistic um, and racist and classist, yeah. and like, and and like a lot of that I think is the um, the spirit of it. Like I, I don't think it's all done to be like intentionally gross. I just think it's right. kind of how these movies are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's certainly like they're of the age. And so I'm, I'm interested. I haven't, I haven't watched, um, I haven't had a chance to watch the film that the guys doing the next one have done. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Ready or not. Ready or not. Yeah. 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 I keep wanting to call it, come out, come out wherever you are <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll be the sequel. <laughs> That's the sequel. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, Ready or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's on the list, um, to watch very soon. Um, but like, maybe it will. And, and as we saw, like with, um, like throughout the series, they do, they do reference like how kind of gross these movies have treated women. Right. Um, Sydney talks about it, um, pretty early. Well, I think right at the beginning of scream, the first time she gets the call, um, from Ghostface, and he's asking her what her favorite scary movie is, and she talks about how much she doesn't like those because she thinks it's Randy, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's when she says something like, "You know, those movies are are full of of women who just have big breasts and blonde hair and are stupid and don't know where to run and and whatever else." And I know that's something that comes up in the other ones too. Um, yeah. I think Sarah Michelle Gellar says something about that. Jenny McCarthy mentioned something along those lines um so like they they're aware of it but i kind of wonder if like in a post harvey weinstein world yeah um and I, his name i think is attached to these yeah he's, yeah, he's, he's uh, one of the executive all, producers all of them all of yeah. uh, well first four yeah um i kind of wonder in a in a post weinstein hollywood in a in a post or maybe ongoing me too kind of world that maybe scream would be, would have the, have the courage to, to dress some, something like do something meta with the misogyny and horror in some way. Yeah. Um, I guess my, my only concern would be like, it's so easy to do that wrong. <laughs> right? Definitely. Yeah. You would need a, a very uh, sure, sure handed filmmaker. Yeah. To, um, to do that. And like, probably some outside consultation, which is tricky because um, understandably there are a lot of, I think social groups that aren't big into horror stuff. And I think we're really veering off of conversation <laughs> here. So let's, let's get back to like yeah. how, how awesome the movies are without like the larger social implications. Cause I don't want to go into work mode. <laughs> sure. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's not well, my fault. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And I was, I was bringing up the massage as to how Marine Prescott, is treated throughout the franchise. Oh yeah. Yeah. Poor. Um, yeah. That poor lady. <laughs> yeah. Cause it never, never a moment of peace when her name is. Uttered. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, this was, this first movie was the template, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
I think the other movies in various ways were able to match uh, the, the proceedings of this movie performance-wise, even if the various stories the characters were in were not up to par yeah. um, as established by this movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, what, what a damn movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, 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 it uh, it, it it blew the doors open so much that it had to immediately go into production for a sequel, yep. while it was in theaters, so that other people wouldn't jump the gun. I mean, if you think about the progression of the '90s uh, slasher franchises, mm-hmm. they came and went. All those moves came and went within a four-year period. By the time Scream Three hit. There's nothing else to mine, pretty much, yep. mm-hmm. except for like, oh well, yeah, Final Destination came out, and that was the last big one. Well, when when did Freddy vs. Jason come out? Uh, Two thousand three, but that's mm-hmm. that's a different like, that is a different feat <laughs> that they <laughs> ain't nobody touching. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, I'm just thinking about like what people would have been thinking about. Like Freddy vs. Jason was the the great white whale, yeah, for '80s kids. Um, happening like what probably 15 years too late <laughs> 10 years too late yeah um yeah. but it's, it's still i think a really super entertaining movie and i have a major soft spot for freddy vs jason which we'll talk about <laughs> when we inevitably do the massive freddy vs jason <laughs> um whatever <laughs> episode whatever we'll, we'll figure it out <laughs> um but yeah like this movie like like just coming out of the gate and also like it it rejuvenated maybe the career of of the Wayans family. <laughs> yes, and and what's even better is that the original title of Scream was Scary Movie, <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> and so, yeah. like, how how amazing is your movie that the parody of it is, <laughs> is the original still, title? Yeah, like that's so meta. Like that's <laughs> Wes Craven must have been so, or Kevin Williamson must have been so proud of themselves <laughs> when. When they saw that, um, but yeah, it's it's so it's so good. Um, all the performances in it um, are—I mean, in every film, but especially in this one—are great. Um, like, there's everybody nails their parts um, incredibly well. Even like the the characters who were only in it for brief periods of time, right? Uh, yeah. Drew Barrymore's famous scene in the beginning, which itself yeah. is like a great kind of bait and bait and switch because you see her and think, well, this is Drew Barrymore. She's um, top level Hollywood um, actor. Of course, she's going to be the star of the movie and she dies in, in the first 10 pages. Yeah. Uh, Henry Winkler as principal Himby is great. <laughs> He's having so much fun uh, with that. Um uh, the the guy who plays Gail's cameraman <laughs> is is really good um, yep. for what he's there for. The other cops and like making David Arquette seem like such a a child, which is also <laughs> really cool in this movie. Like because we're so used to. I mean, the one that comes to mind is John Saxon in Black Christmas as like the like kind of paternalistic cop, but usually you expect police in this to be like kind of gritty. And then David Arquette as Dewey. <laughs> Ma'am, I'm 25. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> I was 24 last year. I was 24 for a whole year. 
It's like, wait. Wow. Or when, when Tatum is yelling at him in the police station and he's like, Mom told you when I have this badge on, you have to treat me with respect. It's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Yep. Um, I would I would love to show this. I, I'm really hoping to be able to teach uh, like horror classes. And I can't wait to show this one specifically to my students who want to be cops and, and see what they think about Dewey because he's so different from like every depiction of, of police in any, in any kind of horror movie. Yeah. Um, and the brilliance of David Arquette is that like he maintains this performance, this level of earnestness throughout the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. The whole series. I think that that's that's a credit to to Wes Craven too, because he, um, even in in his Elm Street offering, his presentation of this slice of life, this particular slice of life, with these kinds of characters, mm-hmm. even when this horrific stuff is going down, there's always that element of of goodness somewhere within the narrative. Yeah. Yep. Sydney is never presented as flawed at all yeah all right um we're never so i mean like part of the thing with some of the 80s and i guess some of the 90s stuff but that preceded this was like we're watching this because we're secretly kind of rooting for freddie and jason (laughs) and yeah and we want to see how how these kids get like how are they going to die and like we're watching it like you said we're watching it to see what happens we're not really trying to get invested in it i'm thinking of like um, Crispin Glover specifically <laughs> like and the whole like dead fuck thing like there's yeah. we're not nobody's getting emotionally invested in Crispin Glover's uh, emotional growth <laughs> <laughs> as he tries to uh, to I don't know better understand his sexuality like you're watching that waiting for this kid to get to get murdered right yeah. we're at no point in, in even from the beginning in in Scream like we're not the characters are so well written that we're not cheering for anybody to get killed. They're not, they're not written. So like in uh, Jason takes Manhattan, I think it was there. There are two girls on the boat who are like, (laughs) they're, they're super mean to the main girl. I can't remember her name. Um, They're super mean to her. I think they push her off the boat at one yeah, point. Yeah, they push her off the boat, yeah. They're randomly doing cocaine <laughs> on the boat. Um, and, like, so it's very clearly set up as, like, I can't wait for Jason to to do whatever he's going to do, to do his thing. But with Scream, at, even at the beginning when, like, they're sitting around that fountain and Billy and Stu are being creepy, it just comes across as high school boys being immature right and, and kind of gross right yeah. um but it's it's never like i can't i can't wait to watch these kids get killed or you right. see these characters die um and as the stories progress and it's i think basically true for all of for all the whole franchise again like they keep this this theme up of like these are good kids we think sydney <laughs> uh, at least is never presented as having some major moral like ambiguity even um she's just a a nice kid um who has been dealt a really bad 
hand, an increasingly bad hand, as we find out more and more through the series, just how messed up her family is. Yeah. Um, but we're rooting for her the, the entire time. And I think we're rooting for a lot of them. Um, and that, <laughs> I, I really felt that because um, I finished watching Scream 4 last night. Um, and I was... I was rooting so hard and I, I like knowing already the outcome, but I was rooting so hard for Kirby. <laughs> she, yeah, she was so good. Um, Hayden, I can never pronounce her last name. I Pan- I think my wife and I, whenever we see her on stuff, we call her Claire bear because of heroes. <laughs> <laughs> so apologies. My deepest, deepest apologies. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just gonna stop. I'm really terrible um, with names, and I. I, But her performance in that was fantastic. Um, I thought she stole the show, and I I personally really liked her because she reminded me so much of one of my former students. Like the way she talked, like there was stuff that that she said that the student, like I could I could in my mind it was like watching her. (laughs) Like this is. Really, like a really great testament to how they're how they're nailing like the way that um like young people talk and how young people relate to stuff and how they process stuff even though like and this is something that comes up throughout the series all of the actors playing teenagers are very very clearly <laughs> like in their late 20s to early 30s probably yeah um and i i have to think that was intentional like i i've really i'm if it's not, if it wasn't, I don't care. <laughs> I want to believe it was an intentional thing that that happened um, as they were making the series, um, as part of like the meta ness of it, right? Because right? yeah. we've obviously seen hundreds, if not thousands, of, of movies and TV shows where there are actors who are in their late twenties to early thirties playing. Uh, like way younger than they are. Jenny McCarthy again makes a joke about it. Number three, <laughs> like she's 35. Why am I playing a 21 year old or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, with what else did I want to say about number one? Oh yeah. The other thing that really stands out is the opulence of, of Woodsboro of the entire community, which is something we don't really see in horror movies. Like it's usually white kids getting killed yeah. um, either out in the woods or maybe in the suburbs or whatever, but Holy shit. Yep. <laughs> the income of Woodsboro has to be like $5 million a year. Casey Becker's house is a palace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That outdoor yeah. shot of a, uh, of Sydney's place. Like, <laughs> Oh Yeah. There's, it's so uh, big and Stu's house too like the exterior shots of that but even just like when they're chasing through it it's so it's so big um, and that's something that comes up again and again um, well yeah I mean number two is a lot of that too with the exception of the end which we'll get to but three and four I mean these these are movies that want to have rich kids <laughs> incredibly privileged and entitled and elite kids. Um, and so I guess if you're, if there's any reason that you might be cheering against them is if you are in like full eat the rich mode, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's really it. Um, and again, these, these 
I mean, that would be different if they were like in their forties, which I think would be a really interesting slasher movie. Um, but these are kids that are just kind of products of their environment. Um, but I, I really, for some reason, loved that that something that keeps coming up over and over. Um, in part because visually, it makes the those set pieces look like so good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I said before the party at Stu's house in number one is, and you like you don't even. It's so good that you almost forget that they haven't left this house for like half an hour. Right. Like, yeah. That, that like whole sequence whole is like forty minutes, I think. Once they get once they get to his house, it's like forty minutes. Of yeah. just you're in and around that property. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's so that's so well done. And I wonder if that was just because of like budget restrictions. Though I have a hard time imagining that Wes Craven had to like <laughs> scrimp and save and beg <laughs> for money, but maybe <laughs> maybe he did. I'm I'm very ignorant to to that side of the business. Um but you like I said, you don't realize that like so much has happened in the story the characters go through these big emotional changes um especially sydney but also like the reveal with billy and stew um and especially stew <laughs> because he like we have to we have to shout out matthew lillard <laughs> who is insane in the movie uh, when i was watching this back, i uh i was thinking i was like man we miss we we got him as Shaggy, right? <laughs> yeah, but we really missed out on Matthew Lillard as the Joker. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not. I too- mean, <laughs> it's not too late. But I mean, whole, and especially now because now he's you know mm-hmm. he, you know he, he's he's come into himself as an actor even more. But holy shit, <laughs> what a oh, performance! Good. I mean, the entire time he's really creepy, but in like more of a skeevy kind of way. Like, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have been friends with those dudes back then. Right. Um, we probably would have been hanging out with Randy at Blockbuster. <laughs> yep. Then with Billy and Stu. But even the part where they're, they're like, they're kind of bullying Randy at, at Blockbuster, um, which Randy like, it goes over his head completely. It's <laughs> great. Like, Jamie Kennedy <laughs> is, is fantastic um, in, in this role for the most part. Um, like they're just so and watching it like when you watch it and you know that they did it that scene at the video store is like they might slip up and like say that yeah just to like further try to intimidate randy um which would have been a really cool story and like something uh maybe i'll steal (laughs) for something (laughs) i write like the confession in public as like a a play on you know the sort of bond villain giving their their speech or what like every villain in the screen movies do with their big expository dump at the end explaining like why they did everything doing it in public when people are powerless to do anything would be really interesting to see how that would play it out um especially with randy's character who wasn't really like a a take charge kind of guy right um uh kind of there just to represent like the horror nerds who were watching it um (laughs) So do we want to say anything else about Scream 1 before we move on? Um, uh, lightning in a bottle to the point where um, Scream 2 should not have worked. Yeah. So that being said, I have a question for you. So mm-hmm. to Scream 2. Uh, is Scream 2 
the best direct horror sequel that doesn't jump genres or switch directors with more than two returning cast members. <laughs> so what would it, what are its comparisons? Like what are, what other films fall into that category? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't think there's any others. That's the thing. Like, okay. Like, you know, everyone say, okay, aliens will be the best horror sequel. No, aliens is a jump from horror to action. Yeah. You know, but I'm thinking, you know, best direct horror movie sequel that has, you know, pretty much the same creative team. And, uh, you know, pretty much the same returning cast. Would Phantasm 2 count? <laughs> that's all I can think of. Uh, that's the only one. <laughs> and even that one has a jump from, you know. Because they stop being. Psychological horror, you know, yeah. cosmic horror to it's more of an action slant. Because I mean, it's got a fucking four barrel shotgun. So <laughs> Yeah, it does become more Evil Dead-ish. I mean, that could be one Evil Dead to Evil Dead 2. But those are yeah. virtually identical movies, and there's not really a huge cast to deal with. Right. Um, you're watching Bruce Campbell get tortured in the woods for how for what ninety percent of the movie. Um, in our Evil Dead episode, it's going to be a lot of fun <laughs> when we get there. Oh yeah, it's going to be good. Um, that's all I can think of. I mean, as a one-two punch. And so I thought that's what the question was going to be. Is Scream and Scream 2 the best one-two punch? I don't know if that's true. I think Nightmare 1 and 2... Nightmare 2 is so weird <laughs> and so different Yeah, that... I, I mean, I, I would have to put that up there. Um, I personally prefer the Friday movies... But I think I would take Scream and Scream 2 over Friday the 13th Part 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I think so. And, and that's, that's really a testament to the power of the first film because there are so many... Because it was rushed, um, having nothing to do with the talent of Wes Craven or Kevin Williamson or anybody involved, uh, entirely because of the rush, there are like these weird... Uh, continuity things that once you see them you can't you can't not you can't unsee them right kinds of things uh so let's talk about scream 2 <laughs> scream 2 um from the get-go is weird because it's supposed to have been a year later but now they're in college yeah um so there was nothing so it, it's very much so like watching these things i I think about this stuff in terms of the creative process behind the growth of Star Wars, which was always, I mean, Lucas intended what, like nine movies, but really had no idea if anything was going to take off beyond the first one. Yeah. Um, and like, as you, if you follow that, that world as intensely as Griffin, I do, you know that there's so much <laughs> retconning <laughs> and stuff that has happened between the, the movies and the TV shows and the books and the comics and the video games and all of it um, where like you have to imagine that uh, <laughs> Lucasfilm or I guess now at Disney, they're like, man, I wish, I wish he would have made different decisions 40 years ago um, for this property now. And how are we going to make it work? Um, I think that's kind of the same thing with scream a little bit, because if they're in college, 
why wouldn't you have worked their senior year of high school into the story in the first one at all as this major, this major thing? Like I would have had there be a murder at prom or at homecoming or something. Right. Yeah. But like, that's another weird thing about this world is that sports don't exist <laughs> beyond the reference <laughs> to the football field. Uh, in the Scream film, the drama kids and the theater nerds are like the coolest people in school. There is yeah. no, there are no jocks to be seen anywhere. Nobody mm-hmm. talks about any of this stuff. Um, it's surreal. Um, so, so there's that. Like the time, the time jump is a little strange. Um, the first murder. So it's the fame. It's a, I think probably a pretty famous scene now. Um, with um uh jada pinkett yeah um and i forget it's a uh, omar epps omar epps yeah they're in line to go see stab um jada pinkett does not want to be there <laughs> uh, is complaining like very bitterly in line she wants to go see a sandra bullock movie instead um they go into the theater the theater is like a madhouse people are wearing like the, the the studio sent out like full ghost face Halloween costumes for people to wear. Um, everybody's running around mocking, um, stabbing each other and people are screaming. It's like a, I don't know. It's like a, the Muppet show <laughs> or like the Muppet theater. Um, and then uh, uh, Omar Epps' character gets, gets killed um, in the men's room in a really weird kill um, that looked, that looked interesting, but like, it's one of those horror movie kills that like the physics don't make sense of it. How he gets stabbed in the head through stabbed through the ear, through the, the, the wall in, the, in this bathroom. Yeah. Stall. Through the partition. Yeah. Yeah. The partition ghost face had like, I guess, x-ray vision. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, ghost face goes back in posing as, as Omar um, and kills stabs Jada Pinkett repeatedly in the theater and then she goes up on stage and like dies in front of everybody getting jeered. None of that was in the script. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I think they probably cast them and were like, well, we have to give Jada Pinkett a bigger role. Well, uh, Jada Pinkett said that she went to Wes Craven mm-hmm. and she said, you know, I want to have the best death in horror movie history. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so that's their version of it. Version of it? Yeah. I don't like, know. like she's like she swung that's a that, you know, that's that's yeah. hearsay. But yeah. Know, like she she pitched that she wanted to have a big death and Yeah. That's what they went for. Um that opening and I'll just say this for Scream Two in general, Scream Two has more black people in it than most long running horror franchises. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, um that that opening is like it's like some weird thing of like how William Castle movies used to be meets the concept of the internet as it was in the late nineties yeah. with, with like how, um, how people on, on the internet at that time and probably now through social media would boast about their screening experiences at various movies um, with, you know, all, all the shenanigans and whatnot. And I'm sure that people have told stories like that as to how they experienced the first Scream movie with mm. people doing zany shit. Yeah, especially so, once they hit like that cult kind of status, right? Like I'm sure that I'm sure people 
especially like entitled suburban kids were probably doing all kinds of like dumb shit in the theaters once it once it became this big sensation. But yeah. But it's like um it establishes pretty much and this is like a theme for the movie. And it's like okay, it's like if you're caught up in this stuff, uh nobody is going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know plain as day from what happens with with Jada Pinkett's character, mm-hmm. um, because that sequence and it, I mean it it really does kind of lend to uh, the stuff that happens in three and four is that things are so overblown with as to how all of these characters are are uh, relating to one another is that unless you know you have people you can you can depend on. As you know, Sid does with with Dewey and Gale. You know, as mm-hmm. frosty as as let's say as performatively frosty as their relationship <laughs> is. Um, if if these characters don't have those people, mm-hmm. they're going to end up in a bad way. So Scream Two kind of kind of hides its hand a little bit mm-hmm. because it makes you think that it's going to reestablish these roles in different ways. Like, okay, you have the new Randy and Mickey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the killers at this time are killing people based on their naming conventions to characters in the first movie. Which they... They, <laughs> they kind of they put it there and then drop it, you know? Yeah. They have the big Eureka scene. <laughs> and it's almost like the killers were... I mean, I have to watch it again to see if the killers were around for that for that revelation. I don't think they are. I don't, yeah. And it never comes up. Like, right. Cece, her real name is Casey. He's killing people in the order they died in, in Woodsboro, and then it never happens again. Yeah. Because there's, like... And there's nobody named Tatum. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, there should have been... A Tatum around, Channing Tatum, <laughs> twelve years old, walking around. <laughs> uh, they they kind of they reestablished the whole uh, the the, and I think the franchise is also smart for this. It reestablishes the rules that it's going to break. Mm-hmm. When they have the whole you know, debate me on the merits of sequels scene in the classroom. Yeah. Which is such an awkward scene. Yeah. It's so awkward. It, it's, it's really shoehorned, but it, I, I think it does some good character stuff in the moment as far as, you know, for, for Mickey. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I like that it sets up this kind of unspoken, but a little bit, I guess, rivalry between Randy and Mickey and then Cece. Um, it's weird that that Joshua Jackson is there and is like never seen again. Yeah, I think he was like a thing by then. Yeah, um, yeah. but like the I don't know, and this is one hundred percent just my thing to live with. Uh, it really bugs me when college classroom scenes are <laughs> never like how college classes actually work. <laughs> like when when Sarah Michelle Gellard says like he's got a hard on for Cameron, like. That's never happening, and right, yeah, <laughs> the no. professor is just like this weenie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm just kind of, I'm running the class, but I'm really a student here, and <laughs> kind of like the episode. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm not great at this. I'm retiring. <laughs> uh, but then when like at, I think there's a bell 
maybe that signals. Yeah, yeah, because uh, because Sydney shows up. The bell rings. <laughs> Randy, like, he says, but like in the sequel, this time the geek gets the girl, and he has Banaka. <laughs> <laughs> so bad his mouth like that was it's a cheesy bad like you know it's like <laughs> so gross it's yeah so, but it, there's so bad it's so unlike randy to like after everything that they went through like why would he well that be... <laughs> well that's part of the thing the the, the audience surrogate that has not learned the right lessons yeah. of the movie that they're in uh randy becomes that person in fact randy uh has another parallel he is in the role of Alice from Friday the 13th. Specifically, what happens to Alice in part two. You have this returning survivor, mm-hmm. which, oh my God, what? An hour in, they're gone? Wait, are you serious? Yeah. 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 And so, and like, that's a, that's another part where, so we'll go through it. We'll go through this one chronologically, right? And try to like, address the places where the film could have been better and where it's, I think a little bit rushed. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the, one of the big differences between scream and scream Two is that while in both movies, uh, a character who seems to be central to the, to the, the cast or the, the main character's lives is murdered right away. Um, in scream, they at least mentioned how they knew Casey. Um, Sid says that she sat by her in English. Um, there's that bit where they're by the fountain where like Stu dated her for a little while, but then Randy's like, she dumped you. Um, and they kind of that back and forth. Uh, when Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett die, like life goes on. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like Sydney like mentions it once and then they're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, about us again. <laughs> on the rewatch, I wasn't even clear that they, that they went to that college, you know? Yeah. Um, you could almost read it in a way that like, this is uh, an imitation happening somewhere else, but then somehow Sydney gets roped up in it. Um, but they, they were students at Windsor, Windsor, <laughs> much like the high school at Woodrow, <laughs> um, has no athletics. <laughs> uh, it's, it seems like a criminally underused setting. Um, so there's one scene in a classroom in the beginning. There is the, <laughs> the really weird scene in the cafeteria where Jerry O'Connell is uh, walking on the table singing the song from Top Gun <laughs> and everybody in the cafeteria is clapping along. <laughs> Never in a billion years happen. Um, and Jerry O'Connell looks like he's like 35 um, with his polo shirt tucked into his khakis. <laughs> Every student is like a drama or theater or film major, except for Jerry O'Connell, who is pre-med. <laughs> uh, the camp, like the campus has a thriving Greek life, but if they're freshmen, <laughs> all of the students, like our, all of our characters act like they are seniors. Um, I don't know why a sorority would want this weird theater girl to like, to pledge <laughs> to rush them so badly. Um, that uh, uh, Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gayhart's characters as like the generic sorority girl, kind of like ditzy, like two dimensional girls are like so desperate to get her in, in their sorority. Um, oh, but 
okay, so we we have the theater killing and then there's the press conference, right? And for like a split second, Mickey has a handheld camera, <laughs> which never comes up again. There's no explanation for why he has it. Um, well, I think that, well, and this might, might just be me reading too much into it because they show the footage. Yeah. The camera footage later in the, uh, in right. the audio video uh, auditorium. Yeah, in that, in that, yeah, in that part. So that's why he has it. So like, that's a giveaway. Yeah. But then later we find out that um, uh, Billy Loomis's mom was the one who killed Randy. Yeah, <laughs> killed Randy, which doesn't make any sense. Like, I when I saw the camera, I was like, oh, that's that's kind of a genius, like little plot device to throw. Like, he's the the theater geek. Of course, he's filming everything, and now he's been really filming all the murders. But then why does this boring, like, how would she, how does this old lady kill the, kill Randy? Yeah. Um, but why is she, why is she taping it? <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't come up. Um, and I think it's something that they ended up probably when they're doing the prep for number four, like we should have leaned more into this, into this thing, because it's a really good reveal mm-hmm. um, when you see like, from Ghostface's POV uh, outside the sorority house when he's taunting Cece um, and inside of the news van before he kills Randy. Like, I thought that was really good. Um, But like, there was no, they didn't, they didn't lay the groundwork for it beyond that, like, like two second flash of, of Mickey with the camera. And then Mickey disappears. (laughs) Well, uh, Mickey slips up, um, when they're in the hospital, uh, I think they're all waiting to be questioned or something. And he says something about the attack that only the killer would know. And Sydney kind of gives them a look. Mm, I must have missed it. I can't remember the exact line, but I think it was it was about how uh, I think it was about how uh, it was something involving Derek and either the cut on his arm or where exactly he was in the house, mm. which Mickey wouldn't have known. Okay. So I have to watch that part again. I must've missed it. Um, which is how these movies are, right? Which is like part of the, the brilliance of it. These blink and you'll miss it kind of things. Um, which they lean into a, a more number four um, with reveals like that. I must've missed it. Um, but it, it is true <laughs> that Mickey just disappears. Like I think yeah. he's at the, at the party. Um, and then we don't see him again for a long time to the point where like as the audience, when there's the reveal that he's Ghostface, like I wouldn't be surprised if people's reaction was like, who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> why is like, why him? Yeah. I, I wonder if, because the first one was so clever, I wonder if in the sequels there was a, uh, some trepidation about how do we pull off something like that again yeah. um, without, without going to like an absurd level of like, we're going to have three ghost faces and four and five. And like just having so many moving parts now, where like everybody in Sydney's life is trying to kill her and it's like hot fuzz, <laughs> which would be like a completely different story. Um, so I wonder if like to try to keep us guessing, was it really Jerry O'Connell or not? We just take Mickey out. Yeah, I don't know if they uh, if they shot multiple endings because I do know that the the script that leaked 
during the time period. Um, and this is big, you know, big during the, the movie website boom days with the website that shall not be named. But um, uh, that was one of the big scripts that leaked. Mm-hmm. It was the Scream 2 script. And I remember reading it. Mm-hmm. And the ending uh, uh, was the, the one they put out as a leak where uh, Cotton, Cotton and Sydney stab each other a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. Um, so I don't know what their process was for like production boxes. Again, you know, they're still coming out in the shadow of the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Lee Schreiber is awesome in this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, Oh, I can't remember his name now. <sighs> Mickey. Tell me. Oh, yeah, he's good. He was, he was good with what he had. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on them to to really nail the uh, the reveal part of this um, again after uh, Matthew Lillard and and Skeet Ulrich like just crushed it <laughs> in the first right. one. I mean, I almost feel bad for him um, in in this one having to kind of follow that up. Um, but it's it's good. It's yeah. weird that it's the theater <laughs> that that the final the final part of this takes place on. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's just, yeah. It was strange. Like it was, it was strange that, uh, the, the theater director, um, played by David Warner. I yeah. was really hope I, I thought that was like a missed opportunity for Wes Craven to have like one of his buddies. <laughs> like, well, the fun part with uh, David Warner is that he was Craven's first choice to play Freddy Krueger. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah, yeah um, there's like there's pictures with the makeup test for him. Oh, and yeah? Everything. yeah. Huh. So. Um, but it's weird that he's like again. This is just having been in a college setting for so long that he's like begging a freshman to <laughs> the lead in this in in this play um, that has like an incredible budget <laughs> for for a college theater, uh, and that she goes from like. Being like, okay, I guess I'll do it, and then all of a sudden they're in dress rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a bam bam thing, um, but it's a cool. But I mean, it had to be that because of the visual of Ghostface in the hood as part of the chorus, the Greek chorus on stage. I thought that was that was like one of the actual like moments of tension in this. Well, you know, like she's probably not going to die in the middle of the second act but visually it looked cool with like everything going around or going on around her. Um, I don't know that that set deserved to be at the end, um, the set piece at the end, but they used the sorority house already with um, Sarah Michelle Geller's kill, which is always weird because we've watched Buffy so many times seeing her lose um, is strange. And also seeing her be in a fight without the, uh, <laughs> The stunt double, yeah, without it, without Sophia Crawford, yeah, <laughs> yeah, is so strange. And like the the TV, the TV cuts in Buffy make the stunt the stunt actors so like glaringly obvious. Like I kept waiting for one of those cuts um, where Buffy is suddenly like six inches taller <laughs> and and way more muscular than than she is. Um, so. I, I didn't find the theater 
setting at the end to be very fulfilling. And ultimately I didn't think Windsor college was used as well as it could have been. Um, and I think it's probably just because of how, how well they use the school and, um, uh, Stu's house in number one. I don't, I wonder if there was anything they could have possibly done in number two that could have lived up to that same kind of, um, artistic quality. Yeah. And uh, I think again, that kind of goes back to what was mentioned in, in the first movie with the whole idea, you know, it's the millennium motives are incidental. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. whatever they, whatever they were going to do, um, it wasn't going to live up to the first movie. So why not make the killers uh, be, you know, for all intents and purposes, disposable. They're characters you don't care about. Mm-hmm. Their characters that are introduced specifically to be at this moment. Yeah. 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 Um, what was I just going to say? Uh, all of our, all of our actors again are, are phenomenal through this. Uh, Dewey has, has a limp now, which David Arquette sells <laughs> wonderfully. Yeah. Um, the limp goes away. <laughs> the limp is written out. And number three, I think he he's had surgery or something to repair the nerve damage, which I don't know if that's how <laughs> nerve damage. Yeah, there was a uh, there was a note of like physical therapy. Yeah, they were saying so. Yeah, they they wrote it away, but like he's he's hobbling around. When we first see him um, wandering around campus, and Sydney's so happy to see him again. The music that they play, like Dewey's theme, is just like the simple. <laughs> he's like this simple guy <laughs> almost like Forrest Gump <laughs> kinda um he's like he's lost on the campus I think he's like looking at a tree <laughs> <laughs> and she's like Dewey and she runs up to him and, and Derek uh, Jerry O'Connell's character is like briefly jealous who's <laughs> <laughs> this this goofball with this <laughs> terrible mustache <laughs> that um, <laughs> he has the whole time, uh, and like, oh, this is Dewey. He's no big deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's so good. Um, again, like hitting hitting all of the inept cop things from the first one, but like times ten, because um, he's no longer he's no longer a cop because he's injured. He's just kind of useless. He heard that there was a, a murder and he rushed to Sydney's aid. Um, Gail comes back in the wake and, and Courtney Cox, like, I, I have to imagine she was under so much pressure to do something that was so bombastic compared to what everybody knew her for um, from Friends, as Monica on Friends. Gail Weathers is, what, <laughs> is such a great character. She's amazing. She's so, Courtney Cox is so great at everything about Gail. Yeah. <laughs> across the board and how like how much she manipulates Dewey um, <laughs> and how awful she is to Dewey and then Dewey like the part where <laughs> they're in the auditorium and they're watching the tapes uh, uh, was it Joel or was it Joel the cameraman the first one uh, it's Joel for, for I think it's Joel Scream number, 2 yeah, and Scream yeah. 2 yeah um, who's great when he's he's yelling at her about like 
<laughs> guys like me don't last long in movies like this. And she's like, just tell him to fuck off and like, like do his job. You're going to get famous from this. And he doesn't really care about getting famous, which is something weird in horror movies, right? Where everybody's like really self-obsessed and, and obsessed about getting, getting famous, especially in scream where the yeah. motivation of, of the killers is always, is always this infamy for Joel to be like, fuck that. I came here to shoot basic crowd coverage. <laughs> I don't want any part of this. Um, and then the fun part is he comes back. Yeah. At the end. And he kind of, he kind of, you know, capitulates to, all right, you want to get this story? We yeah, get the story. Gail's and, like, and shot. Um, uh, was it? Oh yeah. Um, when they're, they're watching the foot, the footage that Joel shot and Dewey is like talking about how, how awful Gail is. And everything he says is legitimate because she treats him like crap in the first two movies. And he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, it's okay. I know I'm a hot mean girl. Basically. <laughs> um, but then it gets weird again because they start to hook up in the auditorium in this disgusting college classroom <laughs> on a lab table, which is weird. Again, Scream being a product of his time and yeah, no, no. dated yet somehow. I know. <laughs> I had forgotten, and maybe it's because I work at a small university, I had forgotten that there are colleges that have lecture halls that have a projection booth. So I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Why why does the projection booth control the VCR that's on the TV? That's so that doesn't that's strange. So now we're like fully into mystery science theater territory where it's just a movie, you need to relax and not think about this stuff too much. Um But like that that part is is great. Like that sequence is one of my favorites in the franchise because Dewey falls down the stairs. <laughs> David Arquette is so committed to the limp that Dewey falls down those awkward like auditorium steps where there's no natural rhythm to go down the steps unless you're like eight feet tall and have a have a gate that's so long. Um, he falls down them. They run through the building. They end up in like a sound a sound record like a recording room or something like that. Yeah. Um, Gail goes into the booth i think um and ghostface comes in uh there's this great part where ghostface is like throwing stuff at the at the the soundproof glass or whatever um and everything's bouncing off it he's like throwing himself at it totally committed to trying to get through and failing um there's a, a false the false death of dewey in there at one point um he stabs dewey in the back in front of Gail. It's a major moment of growth for Gail. It's the first time that she's seeing somebody that she might actually care about, um, be harmed um, directly or indirectly because of what she's done. Um, yep. And that leads to the, the really good ending where it's so at the end of Scream 1, Gail is totally ready to like make her name on, on these murders, right? At the end of number two, she's about to like do the same. Joel is trying to like snap her out of this like fugue state that she's in, and she sees them bringing Dewey out, um, and Dewey's alive, and she rushes to his side, um, and there's and Sydney just kind of wanders away, and that's there's your movie. Um, yeah, the Loomis Billy Loomis's mom is dead. Um, Mickey is dead. Um, Everybody is dead. Here's a fun question. Okay. 
Uh, besides part four, because I got some stuff to say about part four. Yeah. Is Scream 2 the most mean-spirited movie in the franchise? Oh, um, uh, I don't know. I think there's some mean stuff in number three. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I don't know. They, I mean, Gail has to be nasty. Um, that's her character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wasn't, I wasn't big into like Derek is this, the frat boy giving away his letters and now, uh, they're gonna like torment him for that. I thought there, I mean, I think there was a better way they could have done that. Yeah. Um, Though it was like the the kind of fake out where Sydney and her roommate and that's the other thing, their dorm room is is huge. <laughs> we see one time. Um they they're going off with the cops to like a safe house and then people in hoods run out and abduct Derek and it's it's the his frat brothers who are gonna torment him. And for whatever reason, Rebecca Gayhart and uh, Lindsay Bluth are both there um, to cheer them on. Um, even though there is a campus lockdown, which in real life that would happen. I just think they could have leaned into like the, like the fraternities have weird rituals and are kind of cultish thing a little bit more than that. But maybe Jerry yeah. O'Connell is like such a nice guy. <laughs> At least I think Jerry O'Connell is a really nice guy. Like it, it just, something about it didn't click. It, it felt a little, a little there wasn't enough oomph on that mm-hmm. and then they're like they're just drinking in front of them um and have like the beer bong running through his his boxers or something weird <laughs> like that and he's got yeah. lipstick written on his on his chest or something it was it was strange um is it the most mean-spirited i don't know the opening classroom scene comes across as mean because the students are sniping at each other. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that was supposed to be a commentary on like how film fans act or yeah. we just haven't been in college in 20 years and we just want to write something really witty and snarky because, because kids these days be snarky. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. I mean, there's a part like Randy with the Banaka is weird. And then at that from there, like Sydney's making out with Derek in front of him and <laughs> Randy like rolls his eyes and it's, it's like, it's, it's uncomfortable in a bad yeah. way. But number three just has, I don't know. I think number three is more mean spirited, but mm-hmm. I can see where you're coming from because number two is darker and number three feels much more like a comedy mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. I think it's, um, and since we're, we're transitioning to that anyway. Well, here's something I, for three. Uh, is, is Scream 3 the most meta movie to directly comment on its own ex- existence as a franchise? Yeah, besides like a Sharknado. Right. <laughs> um, my thing with number three, I remember when it, came out and the, the Jay and silent Bob cameo um, as somebody who uh, has a great appreciation for early Kevin Smith stuff. Um, and we're doing a Kevin Smith filmography on a future episode, which is going to be like a massive amount of research. Um, 
I remember thinking that was like the coolest shit. Yeah. Like, because Kevin Smith has this like, in my mind, I guess like legendary origin story with clerks and everything. And this is like, I, I don't know. It's so cool that Jay and Silent Bob are in here for a minute. Uh, Scream three feels like a Kevin Smith movie mm-hmm. <laughs> me in so many ways that I, I almost wonder like what conversations he had with people that day he was on set because it's so, it is so self-referential. Um, there's just, there's so much of it. So much of the humor uh, is more like Kevin Smith types of stuff, I think, um, than anything that Kevin Williamson ever wrote. Uh, the look of it is more of a Kevin Smith movie. The color choices are more Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. Um and all that. Oh, and before we get off number, before we finish number two, uh, my favorite part <laughs> is Luke Wilson <laughs> in Stab. <laughs> every single time I forget it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, Luke Wilson is on my screen in full, like, pre emo grunge kid mode <laughs> with, the, with the 90s, like, skater cut. Yep. Um, with Tori Spelling as, <laughs> as Sydney, right? Um, and it's it's the best. <laughs> it's so good. Um, Luke Wilson as Skeet Ulrich as Billy Loomis <laughs> is the best. Um, but uh, yeah, so to number three. Um, so what did you what did you think about the opening of number three when we see Cotton? We see the end of Cotton Mather. Uh, Cotton Weary. I Cotton Weary. <laughs> Cotton Weary. <laughs> uh, the, the, the end of Cotton Weary. Cotton Weary. Um, what a great way to both reintroduce Cotton Weary and take him out of the entire franchise. Yep. Um, I, I loved everything about that set piece. The changing voice change, the newfangled voice change, because it's, it's part three. You got to go all out. Yep. Um, to just the whole setup and everything. The fact that it's him getting taken out first. So you can't suspect him anymore in the narrative. Yeah. Uh, even with all the shenanigans that Scream 3 ends up pulling as far as revealing who the killer is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Leif Schreiber is great again as Cotton Murray. And he just, he just gets a fantastic scene. Yep. Um, he still manages to be a little bit, a little bit creepy, right? Mm-hmm. When he thinks that uh, the when he thinks Ghostface is like a random wrong number, a random woman who's called him accidentally, and he wants to like hit on her a little bit as he's driving home to his apartment and his girlfriend. Um, but then him like f- trying to like speed through Los Angeles traffic to get there. Um, I also like that he's still obsessed with like media fame. I mean, he's when we first see Cotton, he's complaining to his agent about. Uh, why was his part in Stab 3 so small? <laughs> why, <laughs> why isn't he getting bigger parts? Um, he should be doing more. Um, he's the leading talk show host or whatever in the country now. Um, this, the franchise seems to be obsessed with talk shows and talk show hosts, which yeah. I think is part of like the famous for doing nothing kind of thing. Um, that's a, a theme in this. Yeah, it, the, there's a big running entitlement theme. Yeah. Too. Um, cause like he's, he's complaining, but then he, like, he drives by his face on a billboard. Um, 
which I thought was a, a fun shot. Um, his girlfriend fights off Ghostface at first, and then he comes in, um, and then they they both die. I, I liked the little nod where she's she's getting out of the shower, I think, to answer the phone, and she leaves like wet footprints in the hall, mm-hmm. and a minute later slips on the water. I thought that was really clever. Um, and then it was good to see. I think that fight was the first time we see Ghostface fight somebody bigger than him. Yeah. Right. Cause Lee yeah. is a big dude. Um, or at least, at least he seems so on screen. I have no idea what his stats are. Uh, <laughs> but he see like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to mess with him. Um, right. And he like dumps the bookcase on uh Ghostface pretty effortlessly um, and reaches for the golf club, I think. But mm-hmm. Ghostface pushes up on the on the case and kind of knocks him loopy. Um, I thought that was cool, and we haven't mentioned at all. Like one of the endearing things of Scream is that Ghostface is constantly <laughs> getting his ass kicked, just getting the shit kicked out of him, just nonstop. Which comes back in a wonderful way <laughs> later. <laughs> but, so, but yeah, and I I I think it's so wonderful because every other slasher movie is kind of predicated on the idea that the killer is invincible. I mean, Freddy gets beat up sometimes, but Freddy doesn't sell <laughs> that much. Freddy might, Freddy might give you like a little bit of hope early on. Um, but ultimately like Freddy is going to bounce back. Um, yeah. He's going to, he's going to, the, the, <laughs> the hidden, the hidden quality of Elm street is that Freddy always wins. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean, that's the same with like, like Jason is a, is a walking punching bag, but he never, even when you think he's dead, like nothing, everything ever puts him away. And the movies are people shooting him and stabbing him and setting him on fire and electrocuting him and he coming back, uh, boxing him. <laughs> Julius. Yes. <laughs> uh, Ghostface is just like getting getting got the entire time, and that I think that adds to the tension of this because, like, at any point, if this was a real Ghostface, any of the Ghost faces, uh, their their whole plot could could fail <laughs> if they lose a fight because they're not superhuman. Yeah, for the the thing where like you always have to make sure they're dead. Um, that, that's, which is a fine trope. Um, but like for ninety nine percent of every movie up to that point, um, anybody that Ghostface kills could reasonably, <laughs> yeah, right. Ghostface. Get lucky, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and they're really their death is not because they didn't fight back. Yeah, I I, I struggle to think of anybody. I guess Principal Hinby is pretty quick. But um, yeah, Principal Hin, uh, Hinby um, also just got, didn't, there was no chance for a fight there at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, Cece, like she, she's fighting him. Yep. Um, Channing, or I'm sorry, Tatum. <laughs> Channing, Tatum. <laughs> Channing, Channing Tatum. is late. Right, yeah. This is going to happen recording late at night. I get dumb, dumber. Um, Tatum like hits him in the balls with a beer bottle or whatever. Um, 
And, and number three, um, he's like falling down the stairs. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Courtney Cox almost gets him, I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, he throws him out of the out of the door in the fake the fake house. Yep. And, and there's a bed there. There was no bed. Like the movie ends. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. So yeah. So. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I love in this is this weird slapstick element to it where Ghostface has to work for every kill. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, I guess, cognitively that Ghostface is going to win or is going to end up killing people, but it's not, there isn't that same ine- inevitability that there is in like every other slasher movie. Yeah. Every, Every set piece, every kill set piece in, in the franchise is kind of predicated on the fact that uh, Ghostface gets lucky either by, you know, some twist of fate, surprise, mm-hmm. or just terrorizing their victim just enough yeah. to, to get, get an opening. Yeah, and that's, that's part of what makes Sydney really interesting, too, because there are, there are lots of times where Ghostface could have killed her but then uh, he's unlucky because somebody shows up right. or the cops come or whatever, um, or he is losing and, and or gets spooked or whatever and just takes off. Um, you know, in, in reality, like, <laughs> I, I, well, in any other, in any other movie, Sydney would have been given like superhero qualities or superpowers or whatever. Um, but it's just, almost she survives by coincidence yeah or bad timing on on the killers um part or the fact that the killers for all of them are teenagers who are bad at planning (laughs) incredibly impulsive lack perspective um and while definitely think they're invincible are also stupid enough to like get spooked and run off when maybe they could have gotten away with it yeah which is part of like makes Ghostface more human <laughs> and not like an unkillable zombie like Jason Voorhees. As much yeah. as I love Jason Voorhees, so uh, let's talk about number three <laughs> in terms of more of the story. Okay. Um. So you asked, is it is it the most referential? Um. So what do you what do you think about the whole tone of the movie? Um. I think that considering, okay, you only got Wes Craven back. Uh, Aaron Kruger is the screenwriter for this one. Yep. Um, this feels like the most studio mandated of the uh, whole series. Yeah. As far as the stuff they, as far as the story beats they want to hit and everything. Um, I don't think I don't mind Roman Bridger as play on words with the name there. I don't mind Roman Bridger as a as a character because he serves his purpose. He is there to function as a killer and mm-hmm. plot-wise wrap everything up. Uh, it's fine for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mind a story for this one. I mean, I think it, it kind of comments on, uh, let's say, the, uh, the, the Cousin Oliver aspect of a lot of popular media in which stuff is flagging and they have to introduce a character yeah. to either extend the longevity of things or wrap things up. Um, uh, I think it does that extraordinarily well considering the circumstances. Um, they couldn't get an F Camelback for 
a good amount of time. I only had it for 20 days out of the whole shoot. So mm-hmm. uh, Sydney's arc is truncated. But again, you know, if you were at the centerpiece of two uh, killing sprees over the course of three years or so, you would hide away for a bit too. Yeah. So it works. You know, and the fact that she's still working to uh, help people. I mean, Scream 2 kind of puts, casts her as the role of the fighter. Yeah. You know, very heavy handedly, but it still works. Mm-hmm. Um, in this one, she kind of goes away from for a bit, but when she goes to that police station, you know that shit's about to get real. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's very much like "Good God" that Sydney Prescott's music. <laughs> yeah, and I like that uh, her her entrance <laughs> is is preceded immediately by Dewey being like Dewey lying to the cops and being like, "I have no idea where she is, and I'm not going <laughs> to get her here." And Patrick Dempsey is like ready to like beat the shit out of him, basically. Yeah. Um, and then Dewey, who just like stood up for her, and is like walking out of the police station, and she walks in. <laughs> it's, I thought that was I thought that was funny, um, probably unintentionally. Yeah, I I like that she is away. I like that she has all this security. Right. They make a a point of showing her with. Um, her dog. Uh, oh, it's a golden retriever, which aren't like <laughs> the best like guard dogs, but whatever. She has a she has a golden. Maybe she's trained it to be an attack golden retriever. I don't know. Um, she has the the big fence up that has its own electronic lock on it, and then another lock on her house, even with the deadbolt up high. Um, so she is like they really established that she has set herself away from the world. Um, I think it was really cool actually that she's working as this crisis counselor the the way that they bring her in i wish they would have explained it more just how roman was able to get her home number and then why sydney confused the home number for being the crisis line calling her i thought that was a little a little weird but i mean totally forgivable whatever it's just a movie um kind of moment um, I think the MVP of number three is Parker Posey. Yes. <laughs> by, yes. by far. Jeez. <laughs> um, so much so that I, I wish she could come back. Um, I wish there was a way for, for her to come back. Oh, and the other reason this feels like a Kevin Smith movie movie is because of the completely bizarre Carrie Fisher cameo. Mm. Um, that comes out of nowhere, um, serves no purpose. <laughs> Feels like we got Carrie Fisher for a day. Maybe she came there with Kevin Smith. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's great, though, because it's Carrie Fisher. Oh, it's oh, it, yeah. ju- it just works. Oh, it totally does, because she's immediately mad that they think that she looks like Princess Leia. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I was up for that part. <laughs> um. And she's she's great. I'm so happy to see her there. But it just was weird. Um, but then I, yeah, I don't know because most of the cast of Stab Three are people. Well, I shouldn't say that they're not most people we know. Um, we know Parker Posey and Jenny McCarthy. Right. Um, I got, I got uh, Dion Richmond, aka Bud. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I, I, and I wrote this down. It's this movie is pretty much. Um, scream as its own stab movie yeah yes 
yeah, I think that's a really a really good way to describe it. It like it's fun. It's very fun. It's more comedy um than the other two. Um because of I think Parker Posey is just like a comic genius. <laughs> um and and maybe I, I don't know. Uh, maybe they wanted it to be that way. Um, but it's definitely funnier than the others. Uh, yeah, I think calling it its own stab is really a really good way to, to sum it up. Um, even the stuff with like with Gail and Parker Posey's character, like when they briefly are like the buddy cop scene. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been an awesome spinoff, and like <laughs> the two of them going around solving mysteries while like constantly like bickering. Yeah, and uh, that that kind of it leads into the uh, the reversal of the set piece from part two with the uh, with the soundproof room. Mm-hmm. Only they're at Milton's house, and they're in that and uh, uh, Jennifer Parker Posey's character mm-hmm. is behind the uh, the, the mirror the yeah. mirrors. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, screaming for Gale and Dewey, and then um, she gets stabbed, and Dewey shoots out the mirrors. Yeah. She's at the last one, and it's too late. Um, yeah, I, I love that that scene. Like, that whole that whole sequence, I thought the house was really good. Um, I thought it was really, like, watching it now, I think it was probably pretty bold when this movie came out for them to be like, uh, yeah, so this famous producer... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. raped Maureen Prescott although they never say that outright it's heavily implied um, ruined her whole life <laughs> turned her into this like sex fiend which was weird yeah um, <laughs> and uh, yeah that, go- that goes back to this franchise's kind of mistreatment of Maureen Prescott as a figure yeah. I guess the footage of her like going into the motel room <laughs> right with, with Billy's dad and stuff yeah, Man. shot on that like weird like the film they used for that part made it look like a I don't know, like a nineteen sixties newsreel. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. It was it was strange. It was really strange. But to do that in like two thousand one or whenever this movie came out around then, um must have made some folks in Hollywood a little like especially considering Harvey you know, this, 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 came, this came out under Dimension Pictures, you know, yeah. Dimension Films. That's, that's Weinstein's you know, outfit. And yeah, man. And, and again, I think it, it, I think it's kind of, you know, Wes Craven and, and to some, and Aaron Kruger and uh, Kevin Williamson to some extent, because, you know, there's a still from his notes for part three, kind of, again, being very forward thinking. Yeah while still being a product of the time period that they're in um, with what this film is saying about how it treats people in Hollywood, mm-hmm. the, the personas that they have to put on, especially Jesus Christ, like Roman Bridger, uh, Scott Foley is Roman Bridger. Yeah. If he is, isn't the spitting image of all the shit that was going around about certain directors in Hollywood in yeah. that time period. Yeah. Like, you know, just wow yeah yeah uh (laughs) yeah personality and even appearance wise i have to think that was on purpose um they also they mickey him where i think the the only time we see him 
So he there's the scene where he's in Milton's office and he's mad that the 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 shot or the the shoot has been um shut down the movie's dead this is going to ruin his career i mean but then he has this moment where he's like but do you think it will ruin my career like maybe people will think i'm edgy <laughs> and then he disappears yep uh until the party the the rap party that's not a rap party right at milton's house and he's just kind of there and Dewey and Gail, I think, come in and are like, where's Sydney? I mean, is he even there at that part? He, he's there because he... Um, he's there because he fakes his death. Yeah, because he puts his arm around, for which was weird. He like starts hitting on Jennifer and is like, let's go look for Milton's screening room. And it yeah, makes no sense really for Jennifer sneezing. to be like, sure, I'll go off and, and do this with you. Even though like they, they talk about how they had a relationship before and they hooked up before but she doesn't like him. There's no reason that she would trust him, but they needed to, they needed to like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah. cast. And so having Roman be drunk and gregarious and be like, let's go explore this rich asshole's house and look for his private theater. Well, it's kind of like, you know, like his, his legacy. And again, like this movie does kind of comment on legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, like in that moment, they're kind of like positioning him to pick up where Milton's old parties, you know, production yeah. day left off, yep. you know, before they blow it up. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's, it's very, that whole, and John Milton, uh, Lance Henderson is John Milton. And again, that's kind of like, it's kind of like Wes Craven commenting on his older horror movie output, but you know, you know, it's a product of the time. Yeah. Things are different yeah. back then. Yeah, and knowing the content that was in uh, in Last House on the Left and mm-hmm. The Hills Have Eyes, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, which is something that I wish people would get over, <laughs> right? Like you have to understand just the idea of something being a product of its time. Like, yeah, I don't know. Move on. It, it's it's. I think sentiments like that point to the fact that you know we are going to get the progress that we're working for, but it's not going to be immediate and everybody expects it to be immediate, but yeah. that's, you know, that's all that's, know. that's for other stuff. Yeah. I, I, I randomly, uh, my daughter and I were watching the Muppet show the other day and I didn't know that they would put content warnings on it. So episode two, season one with Jim neighbors has a content warning. I was like, why did they like, why is there a content warning for something that Jim neighbors did when episode one has a really gross joke <laughs> that I was I heard it and I was like, I'm glad it went over her head. Um, <laughs> Statler and Waldo are joking about Sandy Duncan. <laughs> like this is this is weird for <laughs> for what's being for something on Disney Plus. But whatever, that's a different thing for another day. Um, <laughs> I wish people would just kind of chill out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Um, so what else are we want to talk about with the story? Um, number two or number three. I- well, I think, um, and again, this goes back to retcons versus revelations. I don't mind the Roman stuff, yeah, as much as it pisses people off allegedly. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's there. It doesn't change anything about uh, the earlier movies because, again, 
you know, all the shit and scream one, that's still Stu and Billy's choice. Yeah. You know? And I think, I think I, I like it, you know, from a certain point of view, the idea that this ghost face persona is from the mind of some spoiled entitled, you know, shock, shock movie director. Shock, shock, that, that, that's a good description. They, they couldn't, you know, get some fucking therapy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And said, "Hey kids, put this mask on." And then, and it kind of, you know, kind of loops around to uh, what was the quote? You know, movies don't make people psychos. Yeah, but if that's if that's you know, if this is your outlet, if this is how you use the outlet, yeah. then are you taking the right things from it? Yeah, yeah. As you're so, talking, I I I kind of had this realization that Ghostface is almost like a disease. <laughs> <laughs> and I got I got notes about that for, <laughs> for, and it, it for stuff. interesting in that sense where like so I mean everything is canon so Roman gives Billy and Stu this idea um, which then Mickey picks up on with some guidance from Billy's mom who she she finds Mickey on a serial killer <laughs> like dating forum thing it's really weird really, it's like a <laughs> It's like a fucked up precursor to the dark web and, you know, the yeah. early aughts and shit. Yeah, she found him on 4chan. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, yeah, they went online to rant about Bill Clinton. <laughs> All lowercase. All lowercase. Bad, punctu- bad punctuation. Yep. Yeah. Um,. And then it comes back to Roman um, as like the typhoid Mary, which then is transmitted to the, our to our killers in number four, and um, whatever happens in number five, and assuming like whatever happens in the in the TV shows too. Um, yeah, I don't mind Roman at all. Um, I, again, my my pet peeve with him, or the thing I didn't like about him, was the same thing I didn't like about Mickey was that they kind of hurry him off, <laughs> like. To, to distract from the fact that maybe it's one of the other actors involved in the, in the, in the show or in the, in, in stab um, who could be doing it or maybe it's um, Patrick Dempsey. Like they, they lean pretty heavily into him as a possible um, killer. He has the file on Sydney where he's like highlighted newspaper clippings of her that she finds um and a, and a fake out when he comes to the house too um and i think that the movies get a little try to be a little bit too clever for their own good to again because of how brilliant billy and Stu were as a reveal yeah um and i feel i i suspect that maybe the easy way out way out it's not not fair thing to say um the easy solution is like let's just have them could have an urgent phone call somewhere in act two and disappear. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. I don't mind. I don't mind Roman at all. Um, I thought the, the backstory was fine. I wish that there could have been, and again, this is like the star Wars corollary, I guess. I wish there would have been something earlier in the series where we had some evidence of like Marine Prescott's shady past right. um, because finding out that she wasn't, she was briefly an actress 
is like kind of shoehorned in. Um, but that she also had this, uh, another child who came looking for her. <laughs> and like, there's a lot of telling without showing. Yeah. Um, I think that could have been simplified a little bit. I'm not sure how, um, off the top of my head, but I mean, that's ultimately, I think a pretty minor critique of this. Ultimately, it's just that it's more, I think it's more comedy than horror. I don't know that the jokes are the best. Um, like I said, it, it feels like a Kevin Smith movie to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about scream three scream three? Uh, do, 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 do. No. Um, yeah, no, I, as far as it, well, besides Patrick Warburton, yeah, as an end up Brock Sampson before the venture brothers are right around the time of the pilot. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it's good in that again, that's another forward thinking plot, even though it didn't feel like it, it felt yeah. immediately dated, but watching it back, uh, last week, it's yeah. like, Oh yeah, this, this, it still works. Yeah. Patrick Warburton is great as the one character he is in every movie, everything he does. <laughs> um, I like that he calls Dewey Dewdrop. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, yeah. Uh, Dewey is now like a Hollywood consultant, like consulting on the stab movies, which is weird. He doesn't have the limp anymore, as we mentioned. Um, Sydney's doing the crisis center stuff, but we don't know what she's really doing for a job. Um, yeah, their career arcs are are kind of silly throughout this throughout the movies, but it's fine. Uh, Derek is gone. There's no mention of of Jerry O'Connell. Yeah. That didn't work. They graduated and broke up, <laughs> as most college relationships go. Wait, Jerry O'Connell's dead. He died. No, he died. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. He got shot right in the heart and in the head. Yep. Yeah. So that's why no mention. <laughs> <laughs> no mention. I'm tired. <laughs> um, well, let's let's uh, let's fire on through Scream Four. Let's get into the Scream Four. Uh, so, I loved Scream Four. Yes. Um, I loved everything about it. Um, the little bit of, I was doing some research for another thing today, and Scream Four came up and it described it as like hit or miss, and I got mad at the internet. <laughs> like, what yeah, are you um, talking about? Like, this movie is as close to the first one as any of the sequels have gotten. Uh, the, I guess the only, the only thing I could complain about is the lighting has that like 2000, like everything in the late 2000s, 2010s was like dark. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess is because of Christopher Nolan. <laughs> the Christopher Nolan, everything has to be extra dark and gritty effect. Um, yeah. I thought, uh, again, I mean, everybody's every every character was extremely well done, um, believable. Again, like because they're they're dealing with Woodsboro and high school stuff again. All the high school students are in their <laughs> late twenties, which is never not funny. Um, Rory Culkin uh, is outstanding as Charlie uh, Hayden. Uh, Claire Bear from Heroes. Again, deep apologies to our to my horrible naming whatever memory. Um, is by far the best part of the movie. Yep. Um, she was fantastic. 
Uh, I was thinking today that like if they're able to bring Kirby back for Scream 5, I would be 100% okay with Nev Campbell exiting stage left. <laughs> Sydney's like, fuck this. Yeah, like, there's my name and moving to France. <laughs> yep. And this is good luck, Kirby. <laughs> and this, this being her, her franchise for the next 15, 20 years or whatever. I think she was outstanding um, mm-hmm. across the board. I thought Emma Roberts was great. Um, especially in the reveal at, at the end. Um, but we'll, let's get into the story before we jump right to the, right to the end of it. Yeah. So, um, so after the ultimate fake out opening that <laughs> lampoons everything under the sun mm-hmm. <laughs> to get us back to Woodsboro. Yep. Um, Sydney returns to Woodsboro and, uh, she's on a book tour. She has reinvented herself again. Uh, again. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's moved past the, the crisis counseling and, um, has become a motivational speaker, mm-hmm. self-help guru of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, uh, the, the whole movie is about, it's juxtaposed between Sydney Gale, Dewey versus the youths of Woodsboro. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which I and, fucking and, loved and that them, uh, so much. <laughs> them trying to reinvent themselves to move into their forties, you know, mid thirties, early forties versus who they are. Cause again, you know, Sydney's a fighter. Yep. Once she shows up, when it goes down, mm-hmm. she's she's the person that needs to be there. Yep. Uh, Dewey is Dewey. Yep. Um, is. No matter whether, whether he's police chief or not, he's still yep. Dewey. Gail Weathers, can she stop being Gail Weathers or is she Gail fucking Weathers? <laughs> we'll find out every movie because that's what happens. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, loved, I loved that dynamic so much because we're so used to these movies just being the teenagers and maybe one adult trying to take on this invincible killer from the pits of hell. Um, and this time we have this generational thing um, and the, and the two generations trying to like figure each other out. I loved it. I, I, I can't say enough good things about that. Um, yeah. It felt real um, across the board from when like Sydney comes to town and Jill and her friends like call her the angel of death <laughs> that, that first scene in the in the car um that's 100 percent something that would happen yeah like these this girl who had never really met her cousin before which i think is is believable right because jill would have been a small child <laughs> when the first <laughs> movies were happening yeah um so there, there is this real generational difference between them. Like these girls, one hundred percent would have been like everywhere Sydney goes, <laughs> chaos happens. Yeah, we do not want her here. Um, and they, they would have talked shit, like like they do about her. Um, right. When we first see when Jill and Sydney first meet at the police station, there's like this awkward hug. They never have like any kind of. So we see like a little bit of a connection between Sydney and her aunt. Um, yeah. Uh, Mary. Mary McDonald. Mary McDonald. Yeah. Um, which was like a random part for her. <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for her to be in, I thought, uh, but there is like that warmth there. Um, 
we finally do get to see Sydney with something of like something resembling a mother figure, which he's been looking for the entire series. Um, she's never been able to rely on anybody um, older than her um, at all, right. or like a parental figure at yeah. all. Um, but there's no, there's no warmth between Sydney and Jill. Um, and a part of it is because as we find out, Jill is psychotic, but it's also like that generational thing. Um, yeah. that, that comes up throughout. Um, I loved Courtney Cox <laughs> trying to like when she goes rogue and Dewey's like, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> like she immediately goes to the film nerds and is trying to like, she bullies everybody but she doesn't know how to get like she like none of her tricks work on these two boys and she doesn't know what they're doing like the one kid has the the 24 hour whatever live streaming his life headset on yeah and she doesn't get uh but they also don't get her <laughs> like they, it, it's great when when she turns on the ice and it does not work yeah <laughs> when she when she goes full Gale fucking weathers <laughs> and it just burnt, nothing. Especially when it worked on Allison Bree earlier, <laughs> who was great as Sydney's publicist, um, slash like hype woman, which I guess is what a publicist is, who is super vapid. Um <laughs> when Sydney asked her, Did you even read my book? And she's like, I was gonna wait for the movie to come out. <laughs> Was great. Um, a huge Allison Brie fan. She was, yep. she was wonderful in this. Um, again, because I think I think Community was on when this came out. Yeah. So it was 2011. Yeah. While Community was not as big as Friends was, I I think she was still probably working against like the type of what right. people probably what most people coming to see Scream Four knew her from. Um. I thought she was really great as like this proto or like junior Gale Weathers, but not really. Um, who immediately when like Gale threatens to like hit her with her shoe or something like that and and is like, I still got it. I'm still fucking Gale Weathers. <laughs> Goes to the boys and it like, doesn't work. Um I especially like when she's like, I'll get you a celebrity appearance at Cinema Club. <laughs> Gale Weathers. They're like Charlie's like, Well, you're friends with Sydney though. <laughs> <laughs> and then they cut to Cindy just sitting there. It's like, oh, you did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that scene is so good too. Um, Charlie again, like the the mythology of Woodsboro is that the movie kids are the coolest. <laughs> the cinema club is packed, standing room only to see Sydney. Um, they have all these movie posters up that the school, like a real school, would never ever let you hang up in a in a high school or a high school classroom. Yeah. Uh, and they want to do this Q and A with Sydney. Um, but then they they have their like Randy moment, right? The movies need Randy, and I almost mm-hmm. wonder if they regret killing him off. Oh, and we didn't talk about Martha and and his weird cameo in number three. Yeah. Um. Like that's that's a that's a part that takes me out of it. Just to go back to that to number three for a second, when Martha shows up and we're like, "Who the fuck is this girl?" And right, like, yeah, Martha <laughs> again. <laughs> you cousin Where Oliver. <laughs> I'm like, who the <coughs> who's Martha? And it, the tape that he recorded, <coughs> like basically sending them wisdom from beyond the grave about what to do in a trilogy. 
I think they probably regretted killing Randy off. Yeah. Um, because he would have been awesome. <laughs> Number four, he would have been fantastic <laughs> as like <laughs> dealing with Randy dealing with kids who know Star Wars from the prequels only <laughs> would be Yeah, him being some weird version of Crazy Ralph. <laughs> like like the Woodsboro version of Crazy Ralph. Yeah. Who has the who has the wrong frame of reference for these kids? I, had I that, told you, I told you it was gonna happen. <laughs> I had that same thought. Randy is the is on the stage as to being the crazy old man harassing tourists coming into town about don't go to don't go into the woods or whatever. Um but I like that they that they had like that here, right? Um these boys kind of doing serving that same part. This is what we think the killer would do. They throw around a lot of like the um internet style language, right? It's it's a a shriekwell, not a scream make. <laughs> <laughs> Like those kind of obnoxious portmanteaus that have become internet speak that has actually just become like part of uh, the English language now. Yeah. And it's also like a cool generational thing because like uh, Gail and Sydney have no <laughs> clue, <laughs> especially Gail, who's like determined to still, I think, be young and like cool and hip, um, has no clue what they're talking about. And there's that part where, she, where she's like yelling at Dewey in the car. And she says, like, what could be more meta than that? And Dewey's like, what, do, what, does, what does that mean? And she's like, I don't know, but those guys said it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so across, across the board, and, that, and like the fact that they did that is part of what makes me so excited for number five because it's, it's been so long, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, that we could reasonably have so fingers crossed that Kirby comes back. Right. Um, we have Sydney now in her, her what, like mid forties. Yep. <laughs> Kirby in character in her late twenties, early thirties. Yep. Um, and then a new crop of high school kids. And so we have like three generations of Woodsboro women, presumably um, they go to an, another final girl kind of thing, but who knows because it's scream. Right. Um, I think that would be, would be would be really cool, and to see a character as like Kirby is such a like a badass chick kind of character to see what she is like dealing with this like generational thing. I think would be super interesting to see, right? You know, um, as like I imagine her as like a high power advertising executive or something like that. Like she is. She's going to be this hardcore, like, queer woman, doesn't need anybody, learned her lesson. Right. Because she made her move on Charlie at the end, and he turned out to be insane. Yeah. Um, getting roped back into this with Sydney, has, who's re- relied on Dewey and Gale and um, other folks. And I hope we get Deputy Judy back, too, because she was great. Yeah. Yeah, she was great, too. Yeah, Marley Shelton as uh, Judy Hicks. Yes, yes. Um, fantastic. Um, yeah, and that, I think, we're dancing around the ending. Um, yeah. And I was going to say, if Scream 2 wasn't the most mean-spirited of the franchise, considering how this movie ultimately plays out, yeah, is Scream 4 <laughs> the most mean-spirited of the franchise? I don't know. I still don't know. Maybe we have different opinions on like how mean-spirited stuff comes across. I think that they... Well, I mean, I mean uh, to clarify, where we end up 
uh, with the characters and what they've gone through at the end of the movie. Yeah, uh, maybe because by the end, like I, I, I'm curious if they, if this even comes up in number five, but like Sydney needs something good to happen to her. Yeah. Only to make whatever happens in number five, have more, more consequences for it. Uh, I don't know what that is. Um, I think it could go on a lot of dark paths that I'd rather not speculate on. Um, but yeah. yeah, like they, they need a break and especially Sydney because like her, her dad is still alive. Well, um, they wrote her dad out in a, in a deleted scene. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they, her dad passed away. Okay. Oh, okay. So, so, so her yeah. parents are dead. Yeah. Her aunt is now dead. Uh, yep. her, her brother that she didn't know she had, her half brother, um, she killed him. Yeah. Now her cousin, presumably, uh, she killed her. <laughs> yep. She laid her paddles to the head. <laughs> um, I think and shot her. So <laughs> and shot her too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I think number four. Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, you're right. Then that it's it's mean spirited in terms of what happens to the characters. I was gonna say it. It's definitely the darkest one since the first one because I think of what number three was. Um, and I specifically mean the way that Anthony Anderson dies in the movie. Fuck Bruce Willis. <laughs> that scene is fucked up as simple yeah. as it is. It's so effective and it's so gross. Um, yeah. and it's not one of those things that's like, it's not necessarily painful to watch. I mean, I guess it could, I mean, it wasn't for me. Um, it's not like getting his Achilles heel snapped or something like that. You know, he gets stabbed in the forehead, which I've never seen happen before. <laughs> and it's, and he comes, he's like alive and he's trying to fight back, but blood is pouring out of his head. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the makeup and the effect is, is, <laughs> yeah. And he, he, he does the punch, like the almost punch drunk kind of like staggering on his feet, swinging wildly, but like going down and then fuck Bruce Willis. And then he just collapses. That was so good. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that comes up the way that Olivia, I think Olivia's death is pretty brutal. They show the crime scene, which I don't think they've done before. They've never done it. Yeah, um, that's the first time since the first movie that you see the 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 uh, ritualistic ghost face kill with the, with the actual gutting. Yeah, um, yeah. It's even, it, even when the when the cops come in and Sid, like to help Sydney and Jill, and Sydney's like, "We're okay, but go check upstairs." And like as the audience, we're like. Oh shit! Like we're back in like thriller territory or suspense territory now, um, which they lean into, right? I like that Sydney's hanging wind chimes <laughs> because we know like that it's dark out and it's a that's a little bit of a breeze to move the chimes. Like there's something eerie about that, um, especially in that suburban setting. Woodsboro now feels a little bit like Haddonfield in this one, mm-hmm. um, which it hasn't before. Um, but the stuff with like the two cops watching the house, even though the geography of that gets a little wonky, um, like there's something like there's much more tension in this mm-hmm. 
in this one um, because of not it's not more violent, but I guess it's because they show they show it more maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I I think it works really well. It achieves the intended purpose. Um, even at the at the end with the fake out death of Deputy Judy when Jill shoots her. Right, and goes down in a heap. When I watched it again last night, I forgot that she that she survived, and I thought it was a headshot. And I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like she just goes down. Like there's no pretense to it. Um, right. But um, yeah, the that whole the whole end. So it, it's very similar to number one, where it's a party at the house. Um, this the stabathon thing is a fake out, and uh, it's funny that. Um, Dewey and Gail are talking about like the the whole the whole story has changed. The pattern has changed. The rules have changed. Um, the Stabathon, the big party, should have been the ending, but now you know something else is going to happen. But the ending is a party, but then the ending is also not the party. Um, the reveal is the party um, at another massive house, yeah, um, which is red. Uh, the interior of all of the houses where the endings happen is red, um, which I, I love that consistency um, with the color, um, that like dark burgundy that they use. Even a little bit in the theater, um, in number two, I think, um, but much less so because that stage was mostly like like gold almost. But anyway, um, the, another opulent house, a lot of callbacks to number one in this in this final this final set piece um, with uh, Charlie being tied up outside um, and then Charlie and Jill replicating in their own way Billy and Stu yep um, which was great uh, it's a fun one to rewatch knowing that they're both in on it Um and kind of knowing the parts where it's Charlie, but at the end, like even knowing it was them last, when I watched it last night, I still wasn't sure like who was Ghostface win necessarily. Um, yeah. They kind of, they kind of explain it um, when he's, he's talking about the Robbie kill, um, which was funny in its own way. Um, and then she kills Charlie and then this great this great sequence where she's trying to make herself look like a survivor of this, and she talks like her her whole monologue to Sydney is about how Sydney is a survivor, and it's uh, Sydney's turn in the spotlight is over, and it's Jill's turn now, and she like she shoots Trevor in the groin, which is like that's the most brutal part of the movie, <laughs> um, and he's like the actor is screaming. Um, I don't think we have a lot of the guys who die in this like screaming right this series um so that was a that was a nice kind of change and then he gets a headshot and then she like takes his hands and like uses his his fingernails when he's dead to like scratch her face and rip out her own hair and she stabs herself and like it's a long drawn out thing and then she she lays next to Sydney and poses just like her which is so creepy um, it was, it was really good. Um, yeah. also like the other, the other callback to the first one is when they are, so I guess it would be Jill as Ghostface tormenting Kirby on the phone with the, the scary movie trivia. 
while Charlie is duct taped to a chair outside. Um, I thought that was really, I thought that was a, a really well earned um, series of callbacks that fit in perfectly. None of it felt um, like shoehorned in um, right. or so it wasn't, it was obviously meta, but it wasn't so meta where it was like, Oh, I get what they're doing here. It's like scream one <laughs> all over again. Um, I, I thought it was, it was great. Um, and the large, in large part because the actors were so were so great um at what they did yeah yeah uh that ending that is specifically the montage uh the narration over the final image of jill and sydney and, and the, the close-up of, of jill's potentially dead face i think she's dead mm-hmm. because it, it goes it's a great juxtaposition because they're setting her up to be the heroine of the of this incident, yeah, which kind of leads me to my thoughts about the future of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Because what happens when and, and and you know as we see in Screen Four, Woodsboro didn't learn its lesson. No, you know, um, um, they did not embrace exactly what happened. They went the other way. They turned it into a whole cult of celebrity surrounding these murders. Uh, what happens? when those people uh, don't get the ending they think uh, they're supposed to get, which again, it, it ties back into the, the meta aspects of the franchise. Um, you know, they set up it and the quote is uh, that, you know, Joe Prescott is an American hero right out of the movies. Mm-hmm. What happens when your hero's dead? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, um, and especially, and I think a fun thing about, uh, the franchise as a whole is that we've had one. Uh, we're going to have a, a screen movie for four different decades. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of real world time. Yep. To kind of process and put into, you know, each installment, mm-hmm. especially um, considering the run that we've had uh, over the past couple of years. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> both, both uh, in terms of real life stuff and in terms of how I think, slasher stuff has kind of starting to have a little bit of renaissance and yeah uh we'll call it the blumhouse blumhouse effect <laughs> yeah um so like you know Woodsboro, okay as a town does not learn its lesson uh um you know whatever is uh submitted into the denizens minds of I am uh, them being owed fame for going through this bizarre rite of passage concerning this ghost face figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't get that, you know, like there's tons of different things that the franchise could do. Yeah. Uh, you know, like what happens when uh, everybody thinks they get their own ghost face moment? <laughs> what happens when uh, this, these hours of footage that Jill and Charlie shot um, did they save those on hard drives or is that in a cloud somewhere? What happens if somebody breaks into that cloud? Yeah. Uh, uh, 10 years on after this incident from part four, you know, um, are there going to be deep fakes yeah. of Stu Rocker and Billy Loomis? They're on the internet now. I mean, you know, they're dealing with this yeah. franchise is going to be dealing with the modern interpretation of the internet. What happens then? You know, that's how, I mean, you can get uh, returning cast members that way. Yep. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a 
interesting time for a fifth movie, I think. Yeah. So I, I have been thinking the opposite, not because of like the technology stuff. Cause I think that definitely that 100% will be stuff that they bring up. Um, I've had conversations with, with students and I hate to keep going back to my stupid job. Um, I teach a crime history course and we cover stuff in the nineties, right? It ends in 2000. Um, and I've had students who had no idea who OJ Simpson was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I remember those conversations and being like, you're fucking kidding me, right? Like, <laughs> how do you not know about OJ? And I, I think my, if I had to predict like what number five would be about, or I guess what I would do, cause we're not in the business of like, they should do this or that. Right. right. I think it would be interesting for Scream 5 to be a commentary on how people's attention span anymore because of the internet and social media is basically like that of a goldfish. Yeah. And maybe Woodsboro has, and this is something that, that Wes Craven did with the nightmare movies, as you know, with making the house um, almost like a character. I think it would be, it would be interesting if the story is Woodsboro is now dependent on like stab tourism <laughs> They have the the Prescott houses now are both like walking museums. Uh, Sydney, I really am pulling for her <laughs> to be like yeah. super wealthy and happy. And if there's a way for her to have like uh, her memory <laughs> erased or whatever. Um, but having, having the town almost be this like, midwestern sideshow kind of thing like instead of the world's biggest ball of wax we have uh here's our murder houses nobody cares (laughs) you know and maybe woodsboro isn't this like opulent place anymore but i'm sure it still will be um but because of because true crime stuff is so big now how does how does ghostface fit into that right right yeah. Will will stab have its own version of like the Ted Bundy documentaries that have have really been so big? Uh, can we get Zac Efron playing <laughs> <laughs> Billy Loomis in <laughs> this like rom- almost like romanticized retelling where these stories are like Ted Bundy was a murderer, but he was super hot and charismatic, and we actually really like him. Um, ignoring the fact that people are still traumatized by what he did, right? And they're right. still survivors of that. I think that would be a really interesting commentary. Like, that's the movie I would make, but I'm nowhere near as brilliant as the people making it. Um, but, like, I like the deep fake stuff. Uh, you mentioned the stuff that Jill and um, Charlie shot. Like, there's still the video footage out there in an evidence locker from Scream 2. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, just waiting... And I mean, if it, if Ghostface is a disease, then there's some poor some poor intern who's converting these videotapes to DVD, <laughs> who watches these killings and is like, I don't want. I almost said radicalized, but like infected or whatever, or learns yeah. learns more about uh, this. There, I mean, there's definitely be a podcast in Scream Five. Nothing yeah. else. There will be some true crime podcast that somebody is talking about. Um, but there's so many, and that's because like, like you said, so much has changed that they have to account for to keep these movies grounded in reality, to give it its own tone, to separate it, to make it of its time, but still 
like in continuity in the spirit of of at least the I think the two most important films in in the franchise one and four definitely I think probably the two best although they're all fantastic in their yeah. own ways um, I think that's a huge challenge yeah um, another thing is and uh, this will probably uh, hit 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 listeners the wrong way but I do think that this the the ongoing franchise needs its survivors. Um, I, I think nothing will end the franchise quicker if they kill off Sidney, Dewey, or Gale. Yeah, yeah. Um, be, because I mean, they're they're the they're the audience link at this point. Yeah, and, and I think just in, in media in general, we do need we do need to see survivors after all this stuff too. So yeah, you know, hopefully we get that. And I think we, it gives if, the films an opportunity. To, to make another meta commentary on Hollywood um, where any other, any other film would have been recast by now. Mm-hmm. Like they wouldn't have let them do scream three right? with, with um, David Arquette and Nev Campbell, at least certainly not four, right? <laughs> and definitely not five. Right. Um, so I think there's a way there's an opportunity there for them to do commentary on like, older actors are still very talented. This is another thing. I can't figure out how to say this the right way. There's no need to replace everybody with like the next big, the next hot young thing or whatever. Right. Um, that these stories still work, you know? And I mean, that's something that horror has done forever. You know, the slasher franchises that this draws on, everybody dies, a new cast comes in um, and they're replaced. I wonder if ultimately they will have to figure out a way to write those three out, yeah. but not kill them. Yeah, and I think it's doable. I mean, the, if, okay, if Halloween has the shape, Michael mm-hmm. Myers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as credited in the credits, uh, Ghostface is the voice. Roger yeah. L. Jackson. The voice. Is, is Ghostface. Um, mm-hmm. Only in one season of the TV series. Mm-hmm. And that's when they really tried to lean into it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think we need that interplay on film in those, you know, hour and a half, two hour chunks in order to keep things moving forward. Yeah. In some way. So, yeah. You know, to, yeah. I think the, the legacy of Ghostface works in the sense that. Now the idea is out there that you can be aggrieved so much as you can do all this horrible stuff. Where does it go? Yeah. And, and what, what steps are taken, you know, movie wise, you know, Woodsboro, what are they going to do to either, you know, stop this thing or maybe, you know, are they complicit because it keeps happening? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what the actors themselves think about these movies. Hmm. Like, I mean, obviously that plays, that's the biggest <laughs> variable. Right. Here. Like, are they, are they tired of this? Um, or are they totally content to make another 15 screen movies? Yeah. It's, well, I don't, I think there would be more, uh, well, I know that once they turned it into a big story for Nev Campbell to come back for mm-hmm. part three, that's where you can kind of see the trepidation set in. Yeah. Because, you know, it, 
and again, it goes to the fact that, like, as far as celebrity goes, how much of another person's life are you supposed to know about, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if, like, at this point, you know, with the franchise being what it is, you know, you no longer have Wes Craven. You need a public face of the franchise to carry on. Yeah. Through. And I, th- I do think that those three, that Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, are in the position to be the public face to shepherd this thing through from a publicity standpoint. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. hopefully, you know, with, with time, because it's different, it's a different, uh, you know, uh, situation now. But I remember, you know, when that second and third movie came out, the press was unbearable as far as those three and how they treated them. So, you know, hopefully they can yeah, and it's, come up with a way to keep them around. Yeah, and it's interesting now, too, because, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to any of them, but they're not the, the, they're not the names that they were 20 years ago. Yeah, they're, they're settling into their character actor yeah. phase, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I know I know David Arquette has had a really tough go of things, yeah. um, and I, I, mean, I, I wish nothing but the best for all of them. But I, I, of any of them, I could see him being the one who's like, I'm just gonna have a quiet life. You know, I, I, I did that. <laughs> I don't want to go back. Um, but I guess, I guess, it remains to be seen what number, what happens in number five, but. I, I I have to think that that plays into it. Like friends has been off the air forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, they're just not, I don't know. And I think that's where, like what I was saying before about how this is an opportunity to have a like, commentary on how Hollywood treats middle-aged actors <laughs> kind of comes into play. Yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. I'm probably not saying this, this probably sounds a lot smarter in my head than it's coming, coming mumbling and mush mouth out. Um, but I'm, I'm, I really am curious like what they, what they feel about it. I don't know. It just reminds me of somebody asking Harrison Ford about like some, some super nerdy star Wars question. And he was like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care at all. Um, I'm just—it's always—it's always interesting to, to to hear what actors think about the roles that, especially in, in these positions that become like really legendary, uh, while well, he's legendary within the genre, right? Yeah. Um, anything else that we want to say about Scream Four or the franchise overall before we before we wrap this up? Uh, I, I I really dig Scream Four a lot, especially the ending, mm-hmm. and I'm rooting for Part Five in whatever form it takes. Yep. Yeah. Same here. Uh, I think. There are, like I've said several times, every one of these movies is great. Um, the stuff that we've been critical of has been uh, well-intentioned, I think. Constructive mm-hmm. criticism to some little little things here and there um, that anybody would notice coming up. Um, this, I love this franchise. Um, I'm excited to watch it again. I want to watch number two again to pick up on that part about Mickey that you pointed out um, that I, I didn't see. Um, strong recommendation for the whole the whole set. Um, I think one and four. If you're looking for a double feature, I would say one and four, one and two, maybe. I don't know. Do them all. <laughs> <It's a laughs> film double feature. That's right. 
Uh, all right. Um, that's it for our debut episode. This has been fucking fantastic. <laughs> I'm so glad <laughs> we finally did this. Uh, did yep. I have no idea what our next episode is going to be. Um, but like I said, we've got a lot of stuff uh, coming down the pipe. And anybody listening to this, if you want to come in and nerd out with us for two and a half hours or longer about any movies or TV shows or directors or filmographies or whatever that you are really passionate about that make you happy, that you want to put positive things on the internet about, um, get in touch. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Heckmouth. Um, you can follow me at Hey Dr. Will. Um, Griff, why don't you plug your plug your stuff? Yeah, uh, on Twitter I am at Griff Moy. That's the at sign in G R I F F M O Y. Um, you can also subscribe to It's Some Damage. A lot of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcast. You can also follow the podcast account at It's Them Damn. Uh, other stuff in the works that I will plug uh, when the time is right. Other than that, yeah, uh, had fun. This has been awesome. All right. Uh, that's it for now. Take care, everybody, and we'll talk to you uh, next month. <laughs> Heckmouth is produced by Mark Warren and is part of the Scatterbrain Radio Network. For more information, go to scatterbrainradio.com. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs>